Yes Wednesday. We have so many cool, diverse people from different backgrounds, different beliefs, different upbringings, and it just keeps growing. Citizen of the United States. I'm a hustler. I'm a big Taylor Swift fan. I'm the queen of the tribe. I am playing whatever role I gotta play. I'm gonna play this game for speed. I ain't going down like no punk. A new Survivor Wednesday on CBS and streaming on Paramount Plus. Welcome back to Composite Two Star Recruits, a USC recruiting podcast where a couple of one star hosts talk about five, four, and three star prospects and everything in between. I am your one-star host, Chris Trevino, and as always, I'm joined by my podcasting partner in crime, Hurricane Martinez. Gerard, how you doing? Keep it short, because we have a lot of things to talk about today. (laughs) Oh, you're already putting me under the Ryan Abraham rapid-fire rules. Out the gates. No, no, I'm I'm just saying. I'm recovering from a nasty 24-hour stomach flu which this is uh, true derailed the war room last week which ironically the week before uh delayed the war room because my nephews were sick and it hopscotched around the family and i thought i was gonna dodge it and uh i didn't dodge it nor did my mom dodge it it was uh it was not fun it was uh it was short-lived but Man, I mean, stomach viruses in the middle of april that's just strange i I don't usually get sick around this time of year, so I, I was a little unexpected, but, you know, you just got to deal with it. Yeah, Hurricane got hit hard by the flu, but I will say the Peristyle still got what I dubbed a war closet that they seem to be uh, very excited about. But, yes, you did get taken out of commission. I actually felt a little bit sick earlier in the week. There was something going on with my throat, really itchy, so I I, but I wasn't worried about this podcast because I knew no matter what, we would have to soldier on and do an episode this week because there is a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about going into this week with the commitment of Bear Alexander over the weekend. There was a 2024 commitment with Brian Jackson. But then this morning, Wednesday, USC hit another home run in the transfer portal and got Emmanuel Pregnant, the interior offensive lineman from Wyoming. So every one of those things would lead for a cold open on their own. But today we have all three of those things to talk about. So it's going to be a very jam-packed show. We have a ton of questions coming in and we have some other like small recruiting stuff, just some, you know, quick hitters that we like to talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about Deion Sanders and what is going on up in Colorado, up in Boulder, this this mass max exodus that makes what USC did last year with their players leaving look like chump change compared to what's going up with the Buffalo. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but just a lot of things to talk about, Gerard. Are you ready for what should be a fun show? And I'm not I'm not going to rush you at all. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to let you go like I always do. But I just wanted to get a quick update for you how you were feeling. Okay. I'm yeah. I'm feeling good and. Ready to uh, sink my teeth into everything that's happened over the past week and uh, potentially some things that are happening around the corner. Yeah, there's there's a lot to go through. And I know there were some rumors out there that we weren't going to do an episode this week, but that is not true. I talked about it on Parastyle Podcast. We were probably going to do at least two more episodes because we got to do we got to see through the transfer portal window, which is going to close on the 30th. We have to see that through. 
maybe one next week, depending on what happens. But we will be taking a break here in the short time. But there is no breaks today because, like I said, lots to talk about. And before we actually jump into the cold open, we just have to say thank you to the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits, Meredith Schlosser. You know her. You love her. The top real estate agent in Los Angeles. It was a beautiful weekend last weekend. So much so that I was able to enjoy my pool at my house. And I don't tell you that to flex on you. I don't. I'm just telling you that because I would not be able to enjoy the fruits of my house without Meredith Schlosser and her team. There's no way I'd be able to do it without them. So they were amazing in helping me get into the house that I'm in now. I'm not just, you know, speaking to them as them being our sponsor, but I'm actually a client of them and they're wonderful. They're the best. And seriously, you have to go with them if you're thinking about buying, renting, or selling your house. Meredith is backed by a full service team that allows her to service a wide range of clientele for rental sales and purchases. She has extensive experience with first time home buyers and sellers. Most recently, Meredith was recognized by Wall Street Journal within the top 1.5% of agents in the nation. You can learn more about Meredith and her team at www.meredithschlosser.com. That is S-C-H-L-O-S-S-E-R. And you can check out her business Instagram at Meredith Real Estate. So thank you so much to Meredith Schlosser, the official sponsor of the Composite Two Star Recruits. Gerard, let's get into the cold open, which is just the most recent thing that's happened, the most recent big thing that's happened, and that is Wyoming offensive guard Emmanuel Pregnon committing to the Trojans early this morning. He becomes USC's second portal pickup in the spring window, and obviously Bear Alexander we're going to talk about. He is the number one huge pickup for this Trojan team, but Emmanuel Pregnon is up there as well. Not quite overleaping Bear, but he is a guy that a lot, a lot of teams in the country wanted. As we mentioned many times on this podcast, offensive linemen do not last long in the transfer portal. Emmanuel had what felt like close to over a dozen offers as soon as he entered. Six foot six, 320 pounds. He's a young offensive lineman, but he showcased a lot last season. He redshirted his first year, took over as a starter for right guard. For the uh, for Wyoming, the Broncos, and you know, decided to enter the portal, see what was out there, and lo and behold, a lot of big time programs wanted him. USC was able to jump on him early, got him on campus for his official visit this past weekend, and we talk about it. Transfer portal recruiting, if you get the first visit, that is the key visit. It's a flip from high school recruiting where the last visit is usually the key visit. First visit for these transfer got transfer guys, that seems to be the key getting that initial visit out the gate. Emmanuel Pregon, Pregnon, excuse me, his name's going to trip me up so much, but Emmanuel became a Trojan. Again, six foot six, 320 pounds. He is a big, big boy. We talked about how USC had a very big need for interior offensive linemen with, the, with Ethan White not being able to enroll at USC due to that back injury. And here we are, USC went out and hit a home run getting uh, Emmanuel Pregnon to join the program for next season. Yeah, you look at the loss of Ethan White, and certainly USC had to replace that. And you don't think they're necessarily going to be able to replace it with an upgrade, but that's what they did. They got a player that is 
grading out a little better than Ethan White. And certainly in terms of potential, I think there's more upside there with Pregnant than there was Ethan White. Mm -hmm. uh, Ethan White was a very good player. He was second team All-SEC. And certainly the attribute that stands out there is the fact that he's playing against power five defensive linemen in the best conference in college football for defensive linemen in the SEC. So that's something that makes you feel confident that from a competitive standpoint, you plug Ethan White in there and he's probably not going to see anything that he hasn't seen already. Now that you don't have the, that confidence with Pregnon, but what you do have is a much more athletic player. And when we compare him with Ethan White head to head, uh, we're looking at uh, first a much better run blocker. It, it's interesting because when I was watching Ethan White on film, I was kind of surprised to how mediocre he was as a run blocker. He, you know, six, five, 240 pounds. He dropped a lot of weight because he was about 400 plus pounds coming out of high school, but not necessarily a guy that was a big time road grader as a run blocker. He was a much better pass blocker. That was really his strength. And the one question I had about Ethan White was his mobility within a scheme, which you use a lot of GT counter. You lose, uh, use a lot of guard tackle poles in USC system. So the offensive linemen in USC system have to be fairly mobile. Whether you're playing offensive tackle or you're playing guard, you have to be able to move. And Ethan White, uh, kind of connected to his run blocking, wasn't necessarily a guy that moved well off the spot. He was better as a pass blocker, as a zone pass blocker, because he was able to take up a, a lot of room. He had very good footwork, and he had a very good awareness for where he had to be, even if there wasn't an offensive lineman right in front of him. Uh, but nevertheless, he wasn't a, a type of offensive lineman that could uh, move from hash to hash. And they didn't use him much like that. In fact, from a conditioning standpoint, even though he dropped that weight, there were series and games last year where Ethan White wasn't on the field. And I think that was just because they wanted to try to save him. Uh, they did have him rotating uh, with other players. So he wasn't on the field all the time. It, it wasn't because of injury. I think it was just because of conditioning. So when you look at Pregnon, um, this is an every down player, uh, you know, 6'6", 310. And when you really get to see him is where he does get a chance to either pull or he gets to move down to that second level. And I actually watched film of him, just game film, trying to isolate him as much as I could against Illinois, Boise State, Ohio and BYU and there were a couple of instances in those games where you actually get to see him really run and uh and he's fast I mean he moves for a big guy and he gets to that second level now in terms of technique um there's definitely uh, still a rawness to him in terms of holding on to his blocks he needs to uh, be able to sustain his blocks a little longer sometimes in the run uh, but he does a very good job uh, once he's able to square up of being able to shield off, whether it's on a pull or he's just doing a down block. Uh, you saw several times with Wyoming last year, and Wyoming had a good team last year. They ran the ball really well, and that was an offense that was really a little more run-oriented, uh, I, I think, than pass-oriented, and it seemed like the games where they really played well, they ran the ball well. So uh, I was impressed with him from that standpoint. Uh, from a PFF comparison standpoint, uh, Ethan White was a 70 overall. Uh, whereas uh, Pregnon is at a 73.9, so almost a 74 overall. So head-to-head, -head, their overall ratings, uh, Pregnon is the better player. 
the White was a better pass blocker. He was 76.3 was his grade as a pass blocker, whereas Pregnon is at 70.5. Um, and, you know, comparing those two with Andrew Voorhees, Andrew Voorhees was 80s across the board. So still uh, taking a step back from what you had uh, with Andrew Voorhees, but I think with Pregnon, there's a lot of potential there. Now, does he stick around for USC? Eligibility-wise, he has, uh, I think, two to three years more eligibility. But he is, because of COVID, uh, a little older. And he could potentially go after this year if he wanted to. So we'll see if he sticks within the system. Um, but, you know, we saw with Solomon Berg, and we had that question last year where he got a role uh, from Wyoming and, and was a guy that looked like maybe he was going to be the solidified Russian starter for USC and then kind of got hurt and then kind of disappeared a bit. And now he's back for his senior season at USC. So, you know, that's the Wyoming connection between those two. But I think with Pregnon, uh, USC actually upgrades and certainly uh, from a, a run blocking situation, this is uh, still a very good pickup for USC and, and, and really reiterates the potential they have of becoming a very dominant running team uh, going forward. And again, with what they do scheme wise, you know, I, I question that with Ethan White, but with Pregnon, I mean, this is a guy that can definitely, he can kick out, he can get across the line of scrimmage and he'll nail somebody straight across the hash mark and get to the second level. And that's going to be uh, pretty big for USC to be able to have that type of player, which, you know, already fits what they like to do in the running game. And just going back to your point about him being sort of younger than the other guys they've brought in already, he does have multiple years of eligibility and, you know, he could be around for at least one more season. That would actually be very huge for this USC offensive line. Not to say that they wouldn't go in the portal again next season, but it would be nice to have a guy, a veteran, they can kind of build around for that big 10 season in 2024. You know, you have Emmanuel Pregnon, assuming he's part of the starting lineup, which we all assume he will be, you know, you have a guy that can help bridge the gap for 2024 because looking at the offensive line this year, as you plug him in for guard, you could have four of your five starters going off next season to the NFL or graduating between Michael Tarquin, Justin Dietrich, Jonah Monheim, and then Jared Kingston. You could see all those guys off the board or not on the roster next season. So having a younger guy in Emmanuel Pregnon, is a big deal, which is a guy you can have for 2024, you know, assuming he wants to continue with that development. But he is physically a specimen. A specimen. There's that that picture that's going around on social media of him with his uh, shirt off, just boasting that barrel chest, that massive chest. And, you know, he's one of those guys that where, you know, you, you when you watch the NFL draft, which is starting on Thursday, believe it or not, but it's one of those offensive linemen that, you know, you see where unranked guys out of high school, like Manuel Pregnant out of Colorado, Denver, Colorado, was an unranked prospect. He was six foot six. I think he was like 225 pounds at one point. Gained 100 pounds when he was at Wyoming since the time they had enrolled. And obviously is a highly sought after transfer prospect now. All about development with the offensive line. And he's one of those guys, you know, you would not be surprised to see that draft analysts and scouts were drooling over just because of his physical body type and his size and his athleticism and all those things put together, you know, once they start to understand their bodies and get comfortable in their bodies, Emmanuel Pregnant feels like one of those guys where just like 
out of high school, you know, was overlooked, unranked, and then kind of just blows up into a franchise offensive lineman that all these teams want to take in the first round. Not saying he's going to be that, but he kind of feels like he has that kind of story arc going on right now. Yeah, he has the profile of one of those types of offensive linemen and sort of the opposite of Ethan White in terms of Ethan White being 400 plus pounds and losing a lot of weight to get on the football field and be a factor for Florida last year, whereas Prignan has to gain that weight and build himself up to be there. And that tends to be what offensive linemen coaches want in their offensive linemen. And that is what you're going to probably have to do when you coach on the West Coast. You know, we talked about this when Lincoln Riley came in and the talk about, you know, where do you go for the big guys? Do you go on the West Coast? Can you find big guys in the West Coast? Or do you automatically have to go back to the Midwest and the South and Texas to be able to find those bigger players? And, you know, the truth of the matter is there are good players out here on the West Coast, but some of those guys are 225, 245 pounds at the high school level. They might be playing defensive line and not offensive line. Pregnon played uh, both ways out of Jefferson High School in uh, in Denver, which is used to be a, a pretty good high school in terms of um, shelling out like really good talent in Denver. Um, so, you know, you just have to project sometimes, but this is what the board hole allows. This is what opens up some horizons, not only for the players themselves, if they go to a smaller school because they're not recruited very highly out of high school because of Maybe, you know, physically they just haven't necessarily blossomed, but also the colleges themselves like USC, who gets a guy that's now 6'6", 310, and is, is got, you know, a year uh, under his belt of playing college football and has demonstrated that he can play at that level. And he, they had played some good teams. Like I said, you know, I say good teams, you know, power five teams like Illinois, uh, a, a decent team like Boise State. Uh, not necessarily the teams and the players that Ethan White was seeing. And again, that's probably the one uh, check that you would give to Ethan White uh, over Pregnon uh, at this point coming in uh, if you're a, a Trojan fan. But you are getting you know, someone who you didn't have to project with. You didn't have to take that gamble and say, you know, this kid's 235, 240 pounds in high school, and we're hoping he can play – uh, guard for us or, or, or maybe offensive tackle and we just need to redshirt him and, and hope he can put that weight on for one and then once he puts that weight on doesn't lose a bunch of his athleticism and, and he didn't he, he literally is able to put that weight on and still move rather quickly like I said you can see in certain situations where he's able to get to that second level and run and I mean he's actually got some some decent speed there He's a little bit of a, of, a, of a raw puppy dog, you know, when he gets out there and he's kind of looking for somebody to block and he, he doesn't really know where to go. But if you can sort of rein that in and, and get that technique and, you know, the composure and he, he starts to see the defense and it slows down for him. Because, again, he only had uh, one year actually, uh, you know, on the field um, after he redshirted at, at Wyoming. So that's going to uh, that's going to help him a lot more and, and help him be even a better player. And um, he may even play faster at that point once things slow down for him and he knows what he's supposed to be doing. You know, he becomes more confident in the scheme and his technique and what he has to do. So, yeah, in terms of upside, uh, big upside for USC there. And the fact that, you know, he still ended up finishing higher in his overall rating as a player, uh, as opposed to uh, Ethan White, is, is, is very impressive. 
Don't you just feel bad for Wyoming, though? Two of their freshman All-Americans have both gone on to – both of them have gone on to USC with Solomon Bird and Pregnant. You just got to feel bad, a little bit bad for them. That's what the Pac-12 is going to become for USC. I mean, they're going to become an extension of um, Big Sky, uh, the Mountain West, uh, these schools, which, you know, are, are schools in the past we would think of as being peers to USC to some extent in terms of competition. And, okay, you know, we got these guys on the schedule. It should be a win. But if you're down and, and you don't have good coaching, it's one of those teams that could get you uh, in, in the offseason. And now – it almost seems like it's becoming a subdivision of sorts. And so, you know, we're going to see how that evolves with the Oregon States and the Oregons and the cows of the world and whether you're going to have a lot of these West Coast players that are going there that get overlooked uh, because they're not at big-time high schools or they just don't get a lot of media pub uh, like you get down south at the high school level or Texas at the high school level. And guys that, um, you know, are, are like Emmanuel Pregnon that, are significantly different physically uh, and then they get in there and they get a couple years under their belt and then they start to, to play well and it's like okay i'm ready to move to the next level it's it's almost like junior college or, or or just you know like a prep school for them and then they go to you know usc or one of those programs that is in one of the preeminent conferences in the nation and so you know it's it's one of those things that um you feel bad about it if you hold on to the nostalgia of what college football was you know, 25 years ago. Uh, but if you're looking forward and you're saying, you know, this is, this is how it's going to be. The new division one is going to be less schools and it's going to be schools that are going to have to invest and they're going to have to have the booster money and they, they're going to have to be serious about this. And uh, there's, there's no hesitation. Uh, then you just kind of understand that this is the nature of the beast. And this is, this is just how it's going to be. And um, <laughs> you know, there's going to be a farm system that is going to develop from all of this if the rules and everything you know, stay the way they are. Just a final couple points on Pregnon. I forgot to mention at the top, he is the number 54 overall prospect in the 24-7 sports transfer portal rankings, a four-star prospect at that as well. The number four interior offensive lineman out of that group of guys in the portal right now uh, second point is that I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to coach Josh Henson and Lincoln Riley for the offensive line recruiting that they've done through the portal. If you, you know, proof of concept is something that we talked about early in the early parts of this show with when they started recruiting the transfer portal was like, how successful would they be recruiting, you know, defensive players, offensive linemen last season, they were only able to get one offensive lineman that was Bobby Haskins, which, you know, a decent player, not a, you know, home run type guy out of the portal, like some of the guys they've gotten this cycle, but still a valuable piece that they got, but they only got one. And then come around to now after an 11 win season, you know, coming a win away from the college football playoff, USC went out and signed or landed four starting caliber offensive lineman. And I'm still counting Ethan White because they did recruit him and they did sign him. But if not for an injury, he, you know, what have you. But they went out inside Tarquin, Jared Kingston, Ethan White, and then now they've gotten Emmanuel Pregnant, who a lot of schools, like I said, wanted this guy. So they killed offensive line recruiting this transfer portal window and just go, just go a year from now, just 
the one guy they got last year to the four starting caliber guys they were able to go out and get for 2023 just speaks to the uh, the proof of concept and how much has helped with them when they're recruiting in, in high school and especially in the portal. And then kind of the last point, we talk about Emmanuel for that left guard spot, but I just wanted to mention or, or say, Gerard, do you think maybe there's also a possibility that he just plays right guard as well? Because remember, Jared Kingston, who worked there all of spring at right guard, actually has starting experience at Washington State at left guard. So I guess maybe the uh, the argument is there that you would want to put your older player, move him over to the left side while you put the younger player who does have right guard experience at their at their time at Wyoming right there at right guard, slide him in next to Jonah Monheim. And then you could put your maybe your stronger interior offensive lineman. If that's what we're categorizing Jared Kingston there at the left to protect Caleb Williams and his blind side. From what I gather, what we saw during the spring is not necessarily indicative of what we're going to see in the fall. So there's been some implication that, you know, they're working guys out at different spots just to kind of see how they played and, and what, you know, sort of mismatch of lineups they could have. And so, you know, is it impossible that even Jared Kingston does kick out and play some tackle or is he set at guard? You know, we're kind of going to have to see how this all goes. Um, with Pregnon, you know, there's been some chatter like maybe he's a guy that could also play off the tackle as well. You know, he has the athleticism. Certainly you have to get him in-house and you have to evaluate his footwork and you kind of just have to see uh, what he looks like on the film in one-on-ones to, to get that feel as to whether you can put him out there on that island uh, to play offensive tackle. But I think there's definitely something to be said for uh, having versatility within your offensive line and USC trying to cultivate that by playing players in multiple positions. So, I mean, to answer your question, yes. Uh, but I think that's kind of a natural strategy uh, to use. And, and we may see some guys move around a bit, you know, for fall camp and, and things that we thought were sort of solidified with the spring. Maybe they don't necessarily mean that they're solidified uh, until we get into a point where you start playing some football games. So uh, I think USC could still even pick up another offensive lineman. We've got to remember that uh, they, they, they lose a couple players and there's potential for more losses. You know, I think at this point we thought potentially there would be some uh, more attrition at the offensive line and there might be some other guys uh, that leave. Now we're obviously not out of uh, the, the woods yet with the second portal window. It doesn't close until – um april you know 31st uh may 1st so you know there's still some time here where some guys may be mulling some things over and we'll see how that uh you know puts usc in a position of whether a they have the room on the 85 and, and b uh they feel like they need to have you know someone else come in you know, they also had uh cameron johnson from houston officially visit usc and so, you know, he was saying that he was down to Missouri and USC, but it looks like he's going to take an official visit to Colorado as well. Uh, now, obviously, Pregnon, if he's playing inside, would be competition for Johnson uh, at that type of player. And, and to compare uh, Pregnon with Johnson, uh, there's, you know, obviously a difference there. Pregnon having that 74 overall rating, whereas Johnson is like at a 65. Uh, Johnson is the better pass blocker. 
Um, he's actually uh, rated uh, for PFF as a better pass blocker than even Ethan White. I think he's at a 79 and a half ish, uh, whereas Ethan White was at a 76, and uh, Pregnon is at 70.5. Again, I think that speaks a lot to Pregnon's uh, technique and just being raw as a football player. Uh, certainly, you know, putting on that much weight and getting your coordination, you know, all those things play into that. And, you know, to some extent, you know, that was, you know, White's losing weight. So, you know, he's trying to get in touch with his body a little bit more uh, at the same time. Uh, but, uh, you know, Cameron Johnson is still there. Uh, right now, I wouldn't expect him to end up at USC, uh, but there's potential there. You know, you never know. You, you lose Cortland Ford, who is left tackle. Uh, you know, you, you've lost a couple of players. There's potential to lose more on the offensive line. So, you know, USC maybe perhaps they're pre- preemptive in that. Uh, I don't know how that goes. You know, it's one of those things where you kind of have to get a feel internally as to whether there are some guys thinking like they want to jump into the portal and look around. Uh, but I'm surprised really that, you know, maybe even more didn't jump into the portal with the first window. So that kind of says something that those guys in that room, even the guys that maybe aren't playing a whole lot, uh, are, are pretty comfortable with the, the culture in the room. And, you know, there's not guys just saying, hey, you know what? If I'm not going to play, then I don't want to be here sort of thing. And so that's a good sign just from a culture standpoint, I think, for USC that uh, they haven't had a lot of guys that just want to leave. And we've seen that even in the past with some of those Clay Helton teams. You know, Stephen Carr, the running back that was at USC, I mean, he had multiple instances where he could leave. Josh Follow is another example of a player that, you know, multiple instances, guys in his ear saying, dude, you need to go transfer somewhere else. Like, why are you staying at USC? Why are you staying at USC? But they just loved USC. They liked USC and they they enjoyed the school and the community and uh, they just didn't want to leave. And, and finally, Stephen Carr left and went to Indiana uh, to go play for his old ball coach, Dylan McCullough. Uh, but I don't know if Dylan McCullough wasn't at Indiana, then he would have left, to be perfectly honest. So, uh, again, it's one of those things where, they always say USC recruits itself, but to some extent, you know, that's true. And certainly when we're talking about retention and roster retention, that's a big deal. Again, a huge, huge win for USC in the portal, getting Emmanuel Pregnon. Excited to see what he looks like when he gets on campus, you know, six foot six, 315, 18, 20 pounds. I've seen it listed all over the place, but whatever the case, he is a big, big boy. Can't wait to see what he looks like in the summer and the fall. And a huge victory for the Trojans in reshaping that offensive line for a run in 2023. And with that, I think it's time to move on to our next. Wait, what? What is that? Oh God! Oh God! You know, I really thought you would say something. In this day and age, where you have home invasions and increasing violence probably shouldn't make those jokes because there could be somebody actually breaking into the office to rob you. It wasn't the uh, the bear call that kind of changed that for you? Gave it away? Yeah. I could barely actually hear it. But either way, I figured it was a bear or maybe it was just like a big fly that you thought was a bee that got into the office. Probably would have been the same reaction. If that doesn't lead us into what our next talking point is, I don't really know what will, because USC 
landed a massive, massive, massive human being that goes by the name of Bayer Alexander, the Georgia defensive tackle who entered the transfer portal the day of USC spring game, well, or announced his intention to enter the the transfer portal on the day of the spring game and made everybody not care about the results of the spring game, ended up taking an official visit to USC that weekend, announced his commitment or his or that he was going to make his commitment on Sunday, ended up being the Trojans over Texas, Penn State, Miami, Colorado, schools he did not visit throughout this process, only took one visit, and that was to USC. USC nabs him, and this is a massive, massive win for the Trojans and their attempt to turn the page on last season's defensive effort, getting a big six foot four, 305-pound defensive tackle like Bear Alexander, we talked about him on the last podcast as someone who is very talented, very young still, but did contribute for a Georgia national championship defense, had a couple tackles for a loss in the national championship game. He's the number 12 overall prospect in the transfer portal rankings, the number one interior defensive lineman or just interior, just in general, general defensive lineman. So this is another big victory for the Trojans which really needed more impact defensive linemen to go with Keon Bars, who was another interior defensive lineman, Anthony Lucas, the former five-star, and then Jack Sullivan, who, you know, has not talked about as much as those other two guys that I mentioned along with Bear. But he looks like he is going to be a very big contributor, an important part for this defensive front. USC basically has remade their entire defensive front with those four guys there, you know, throwing a Jamal Muhammad, Part of that front as well. It's looking like this is going to be a very, very fun and interesting front to look at. But Gerard Bear Alexander is going to be a Trojan. Oh, looking straight grizzly. <laughs> Bitch, better have my honey. Oh, ooh, bear puns. I like those. Well, alrighty then. Uh, yeah, we uh, thought that Bear Alexander would end up committing to USC. The biggest question for us was whether it was going to be a quick commitment or whether it was going to be a commitment that sort of dragged on and with all this talk of, oh, you know, USC's tampering and and that, you know, we also went into with fan bases and the reality of what the transfer portal is and how things work. If there was going to be some space here, like we saw with Mario Williams and Caleb Williams and even Jordan Addison to a certain extent, but we didn't see that, which I think is a sigh of relief for a lot of Trojan fans and and probably even a sigh of relief to some extent for USC because Barry Alexander had gone through the recruiting process and I made some errors talking about his recruitment in the last podcast. I said errors. he did not decommit from Georgia, but that was inaccurate. He did commit to Georgia in February and then he ended up decommitting right before the summer. And it was an odd decommitment because he was in town at Georgia for their two-day camp. He didn't camp with them, but he was there. And that's when I think he had a conversation with the coaching staff. They probably said, hey, you know, we really would like you to shut it down. Uh, If you're going to be committed, you know, you should be committed. And that evidently led to him decommitting and reopening the process. He did take official visits over the summer to Miami and Alabama. And then I think it was October is when he decided to recommit to Georgia. So there was – some some 
some wavering there that went back and forth. And I know that, you know, his recruitment was pretty crazy, you know, up and before the point that he originally committed to Georgia the first time, you know, Texas A&M and uh, several other schools were involved with him. Texas tried to get involved with him as well. In fact, something that you didn't point out, which I was, I was surprised he actually did have a official visit date set with USC for the golden hour. So he was one of those players, and there were a handful of players that were originally going to officially visit USC for that weekend that ended up not officially visiting. Uh, you wrote a story about it. And so he was a guy that, yeah, USC sort of played around with and um, did recruit some out of high school, but just didn't really get a lot of traction with. And he ended up back at Georgia. But I think this was one that USC wanted to, to put to bed quickly, get it done, uh, they're going to want to get him on campus ASAP and uh, have him ready to go and have him a part of the team uh, to make a push for being a part of the starting lineup. And we talked last week a little bit about where he fit or where he would fit because at that point he hadn't actually committed publicly yet. But looking at it, I mean, I see where you could put he at uh, a nose tackle position or you could put him at three technique. You know, he's kind of interchangeable to some extent with Keon Bars. Uh, I think uh, both are better pass rushers right now than they are run stoppers. And in order for Bear Alexander to take that next step, for him to be the guy that Trojan fans hope he is, he has to develop that part of his game. He has to develop the part of his game where it doesn't show up in the box scores. He has to take double teams. He has to be able to be disruptive, mis redirect the run game. Uh, you know, give pressures up the middle of the quarterback, not necessarily have to have sacks, but just be able to move the quarterback off his spot and force the passing game to be maybe more predictable. Overall, in the passing game, it's have Bear Alexander and Keon Bars make the opposing offense passing game more predictable. And, and, and how do you do that? Well, you take away the middle of the field to some extent because you have quarterback pressure right up the gut. And that's something that USC did not have really at all last season. And they haven't had for a long time. And the easiest place for the quarterback to throw the ball, the easiest place for him to get a rhythm if he's off, is to throw the ball right in front of him, right? That's, that's the easiest place. That's, you know, vision-wise, just throw the ball over the middle, take advantage of any soft zones. They don't, quarterbacks that are, you know, average to even above average with their arm strength and passing the ball, don't really want to throw the ball outside the hashes, not unless it's a little bubble screen or something easy, but throwing the ball downfield outside the hashes is, is hard. You have to be accurate and you have to have some velocity on the football or the defense, the defensive backs are going to jump that route and they're going to get interceptions. So throwing the ball across the middle of the field right there in front of you is always the easiest option for an offense. And that's where USC had a lot of issues, especially on third downs where they did not stop offenses on third and 19 just throwing an in route and so when you have pressure and that quarterback has to move off his spot and he has to move to one of the hashes all of a sudden it changes you know his footwork all these other things are now stressed and it just makes the passing game more predictable for the back seven so that's where you have to see him develop a bit in the passing game but in the run game as well be able to take those double teams whether he's playing nose tackle or he's playing a three technique like I said I feel like he and Bars are a bit interchangeable in terms of that. But I think because Bears a bit bigger, a bit stronger, he could potentially have a better anchor 
he needs to develop that ability to where they just can't move him. You know, he's got to be a bit, a bit of a space eater sometimes and not necessarily get sucked in to a pass rush situation because we've seen with USC, which they've got, you know, some good players in the front seven from a pass rush situation. They've got some guys that can pass rush off the edge, obviously. Some of those guys get sucked in to pass rush techniques and sometimes lack the awareness of the down and distance or their keys and they get stuck in a pass rush and a spin move or something. And all of a sudden they're so far out, whether they're playing the edge or playing the middle, they've lost, they've lost their gap integrity. And we saw that even with the spring game, there was a play there in the beginning of the game with Austin Jones running off tackle. And it was just a really bad play where the, the, the left side of the defensive line completely caved in. And it was Mason Cobb that was kind of left in the no man's land to press the line. And he just, there's no way he's going to meet Austin Jones at the line and Austin Jones is not going to be able to laterally move against him and, and get that, get that outside. And, and if Mason Cobb decided to try to protect the outside and contain on that particular point, which is not his job, he's a middle linebacker. So it's, you know, if you, your, your responsibility is uh, protect the inside out. Okay. So, you know, he did the right thing, but let's just say he goes, Oh, you know what? I, I feel like this is, he's going to try to bounce it outside. I'm going to try to cut him off and take an angle that's wider. He would have left the whole middle of the field open and it might've given up even more points. So that's where USC has to get better. They have to get a little better and just being able to fit those runs, uh, having a little more awareness. And if you have somebody who's taking double teams, it will allow other players uh, more freedom. It will allow the linebackers to see the line of scrimmage better, to fill the gaps better, and to be able to make tackles instead of having to take on maybe some of those offensive linemen getting to the second level of the defense. This was brought up on the Parastop podcast. I believe Eddie, our favorite, called this in with the question of, do you potentially play? I think the assumption is that, you know, Bars and Bear will could play that middle, that nose guard spot. But do you see a possibility of Bars playing the interior, that nose guard spot, and then Bear playing on the outside at that defensive tackle spot? Yeah, so we're talking, you know, the difference between uh, like a one technique and the three mm -hmm. technique, the nose tackle and the defensive tackle spot for USC. You know, like I said, they are somewhat interchangeable. Uh, I think Bear is bigger, but... Yes. You know, Bear could also be quicker at the same time. And so you tend to want to have your three technique to be kind of the most athletic defensive lineman you have. Now, he's not a prototypical three technique in terms of his build. Usually you want a guy that's six four, six five tall, Leonard Williams type. Leonard Williams is a prototypical three technique, even though he ended up playing uh, someone uh, for the Jets. That's really what you want. You know, it's your 6'5", 285, 290-pound guy. Up that's fast, that can get upfield, and it's got those long arms, so he can be a factor in the passing game. Even if he's not making a sack, he's still disruptive. He still gets his hands in the air. And again, you're just trying to move the quarterback off that spot, not give him clear vision over the middle of the field. A uh, Bears, you know, 6'3", I think he's listed last at 305 pounds. He, he looks about 300 pounds. He doesn't look like the 325, 330 that he was at Denton Ryan High School his junior year. He looks like he is uh, slim down a bit. So, you know, athletically, yeah, potentially you could put them both in there at the same time for sure. And what that would do, it was probably kick out um, the kid from Purdue whose name I'm blinking right now. Why am I blinking? Jack, Jack Sullivan. 
Jack Sullivan, who was playing three technique a lot in the spring game. So Jack Sullivan is, you know, 6'5". He's, I think he's listed at 275. That looks like an underlisting. He looks like he's actually bigger than... The rare Anthony. underlisting. Yeah, he looks like he's definitely bigger than Anthony Lucas, who confirmed to us that he's only 270. So, you know, he could be like 280, 285. He, he looks actually more like a prototypical three technique. The only issue is he's probably not quite the athletic three technique that you want for password situations. So against bigger teams, so your Utahs, uh, we're not sure what Oregon's going to do offensively, but we figure they're going to still try to run a, a little bit more run-oriented offense uh, and, and continue that. UCLA is a run-oriented offense. Uh, Oregon State's a run-oriented offense, although they don't pick up Oregon State on the schedule this year. Um, their teams on the roster certainly uh, throw Notre Dame in there that can run the ball and have some ability to run the ball with some power. You could put Bars and, and Barry Alexander – and Jack uh, Sullivan uh, with, you know, Anthony Lucas as your rush end, and you get a whole lot bigger than you did last year. Like you get a ton bigger and it's just a matter of trying to move guys off their spots. And, and if you've got quick guys there that can anchor, then it just becomes that much more difficult instead of trying to sort of use some gamesmanship, uh, try to use some shifts, trying to use these little TC stunts and things where you're, you're trying to, um, use misdirection to be able to get your uh, defensive lineman off of blocks and to try to mix people up. And instead, just playing man ball, right? Just just straight up like, okay, you know what? This You you got the A gap. You got the B gap. This is what you're attacking. Keep your eyes up. Look at your keys. You know, don't get sucked into a pass rush move if it's, you know, first and 10 because, you know, they might not be passing the ball unless there's some tendency that you look at from a formation standpoint. And you play much more physical up front with that group. I mean, in general, USC's defense, although we talked about it critically against the run in the spring game, in general, they look a lot more athletic and they look longer. Just, just kind of as a whole, even back seven, they just looked better. And so there's potential there. Now, obviously, with all this said, you still have to have guys that play discipline. And like I said, you got to have good eyes and you got to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, you can't just uh, hope that Barry Alexander is going to be unblockable every down and uh, disrupts so much. You, you do have to have guys that are playing disciplined football, tackling well. You know, we've seen uh, plenty of instances where, you know, there have been some missed tackles because of bad angles. So all those things still have to get righted. But this certainly brings a, a somewhat of a gravitational point, whether he's playing three technique or he's playing the one shade or even zero shade or USC does something different, you know, just depending on, uh, you know, with him in the lineup that uh, there's, there's a, a little bit of a wrinkle that they want to use. You're still getting a lot more physical up front. And certainly it takes, you know, any pressure off of Jack Sullivan or maybe even Anthony Lucas, who, who really never played much on the interior during the spring game. I, I could see maybe in a, in a, a true password situation where you've got like third and 16, third and 20, you know, you could put all your best pass rushers on the field. We, we've seen USC do that in the past. But in normal personnel packages, I mean, USC could be uh, definitely just a lot bigger and a lot stronger and, and obviously a lot newer because you're talking about four new defensive linemen that didn't even play last year that would be in the game. And that's not even including Jamil Muhammad, who I thought out of that group, obviously Barry Alexander didn't play in the spring game, but of the group that I mentioned with Jack Sullivan and Keon Bars, who I thought played well, uh, Anthony Lucas, I, I thought Jamil Muhammad was actually the best of the group. I thought he played 
the best. And I think on film, like I said, when he was uh, recruited and he signed with USC or he enrolled at USC, you know, he's the one guy that really showed on film that he did have some awareness for run versus pass. And that's something that had been lacking a lot from the rush end spot for USC. You know, again, don't get sucked into, I got to get to the, to the offensive backfield when sometimes the offensive backfield's coming to you and you've got to be able to break down and you've got to know uh, where you are to your blocker and where you are to your gap assignment. And so you get too wide. It's like, you know, it's not the defensive tackles responsibility to be able to take, you know, five yard hole or the, or you're going to depend on the linebacker to have to make that play where, you know, maybe he's just not going to be able to get there in time, or maybe he takes a bad angle. You just never know if you're being disciplined in your run fits and you're not allowing those type of gaps, you know, everybody's doing their job and they can do it sort of succinctly and nobody has to make that great play. It's like, okay, you know, maybe Mason Cobb can make that tackle in space, you know, but maybe he can't. And it's not necessarily something that, you know, it's his fault because he can't. The problem was there was absolutely, absolutely no containment from the defensive line on a particular play. Mm-hmm. Bitch better have my honey. Oh, I think the final part in talking about Bear Alexander is sort of the historical context and the recruiting win that it is in terms of getting a player of this caliber at USC, you know, getting players like this back at USC, these big, bigger defensive linemen kind of deals. And we were asked about this on the Peristyle podcast about who who was the last player like Bear Alexander to commit to USC, something along those lines. I didn't really have a great answer for that because I don't know that many players like Bear Alexander have fit that fit the mold that he is or the player type that he is. USC more has those those big athletic Leonard Williams types. And I don't know if that's exactly a good comp for Bear Alexander in terms of that question. I know Sean Cody is a name that has been thrown around in terms of the the impact that it has for recruiting in terms of like building around is this the most important recruit USC has got or Lincoln Riley has gotten since, you know, not including kind of like Caleb Williams, obviously, but just that foundational building piece for for a defense or whatnot. So there's a lot of like historical little data that we have to kind of talk about when it comes to Bear. Uh, Gerard, I don't know if there's like a player in mind that you have as sort of like a comp in terms of old USC players. Yeah, well, there's two different questions there. There's who's the defensive player or the defensive lineman that maybe makes the type of impact that Bear Alexander could make. And then you're kind of comparing also, is he a program changer? Is he sort of a benchmark recruit within the Lincoln Riley era? The latter, and I see where, you know, the Sean Cody comparisons come in. I wouldn't say that I would compare him to Sean Cody, and mainly because I feel like we're already kind of past that point for USC as a program, right? The Sean Cody impact player on the defensive line had to be signed uh, last year. And I think we talked about Josh Connerly being maybe Mm -hmm. one of those type of players, and He's not even a defensive lineman, but as an offensive tackle and being that USC had missed on so many good high school offensive tackles, that would have been a pretty significant statement win for USC. And that's what that comparison is 
when you start to bring up Sean Cody's name because he was a benchmark recruit for Pete Carroll, was a guy that was known not only at a, a neat position and was a five-star guy, but sort of changed the narrative about USC recruiting. You know, got him away from Notre Dame. Notre Dame had been more successful at that point against USC in recruiting and on the field. UCLA was uh, locally the school that was uh, the real big recruiting juggernaut. And so that changed the narrative just as a program. And I think because Lincoln Riley is able to turn around uh, the program last season and win 11 games, I think we're kind of past that point of talking about, like, who's the guy that's going to help them get there? You know, Sean Cody was signed when USC was still not very good. And it took, you know, that next season and the season after to where it was all of a sudden like, okay, yeah, man, that Sean Cody actually uh, became not only the guy from a hype situation in the five-star recruit, but he became someone who contributed and produced for USC and helped them win the national championship. So I don't know that I would compare Bear Alexander or really anybody uh, in a single way uh, right now, unless you want to go and, you know, say, well, Caleb Williams and some of those transfers that they got early on. Um, but I think that it's still a little bit of apples and oranges from that standpoint. I think in terms of you know, defensive linemen that could potentially be this good, USC just hasn't had a lot of those interior guys, you know, over the years. You got to go back to, you know, Cedric Ellis and, um, you know, Antoine Woods was a very good player that they got. George Uko was a very good player that they got. Um, we'll see, you know, I think obviously if they would have gotten Bear out of high school, there would have been equally as amount of hype here. You get him away from the national championship team, which he played some for. Uh, he was semi-productive for them, uh, but you put asterisks on that knowing that Georgia's stacked on the defensive line. Georgia has two guys that were going to play ahead of him this year, but they're both seniors. So, you know, it's one of those things that you're like, okay, if he was playing at Wyoming, right, like Emmanuel uh, Pregnon, then there would be a different story. But he's playing at Georgia. He's playing at the best school with the best defense in the country you could argue, with one of, if not the best, best defensive lines in the nation last year. Uh, you certainly could argue and have a very good argument. Um, so you say, okay, look at the fact that he even got any playing time in that situation shows that he's very talented. Now, he was used a bit more situationally and looked at more as a pass rush uh, threat in the interior and so, again, that goes back to what we were just talking about. He has to uh, fill out and flesh out the other part of his game against the run and become a three-down defensive lineman for USC. But I think, you know, in terms of fit, ironically, I think he may fit what USC does better than what Georgia does. Georgia's running a 4-2-5 tight front uh, and the variation that they run is a mid front. So they're running two four eye techniques, which is four inside technique, which uh, those defensive ends are lining up on the inside shoulder of the offensive tackle, and then a zero shade. So you're going to have a defensive nose guard, nose tackle right over the center. So they're playing more of a two gap defense. And I mentioned this a little bit in the future impact piece we wrote about Bear Alexander. A two-gap defense without getting into the weeds of it is basically 
the defensive lineman is responsible for each gap on either side of him and the offensive lineman, right? So you've got an A gap, you've got a B gap, you've got a C gap. And so if you're playing T two gap, what you're doing is you're playing over an offensive lineman and you're engaging him first. And then you have to read and react as to which hole you need to defend depending on where the run might be going right now. There's also some scheme involved and sometimes you may just attack a specific gap. And, but in general, when you're learning to play that technique, it's really about eye discipline and it's about engaging and then shedding blocks. Whereas you're playing in a one gap defense, which is what USC runs and they've run with Pete Carroll and really some of the most successful defenses that they've run have been one gap schemes. You want more athletes because those guys are meant to get up into the gap. You want to force the offensive lineman to adjust to you. So you're always really going to be, depending on any shifts and what have you, attacking a specific gap. And then you're sort of reading, reacting if it's a run. And if it's not a run, it's a pass. And then you're just pass rushing. So you tend to want to have those guys that are a little better athletes, that are quicker, that can get upfield. Whereas if you're running two gap, you want guys that anchor a little more. You have those 340 350 pound guys like Terrence Cody that are in the middle and they're just space eaters. They're just going to, they're going to be on a block or maybe two blocks and they're going to have to space eat. Now, as I said, even though USC is running a one gap defense, that's where I think you, with Bear Alexander, he does have to instill brace some of that taking on double teams and knowing, Hey man, you may not make the play, but if you can at least get some penetration and fight a double team, you're still going to be ultraly uh, successful for the defense. Like you're going to be contributing to the defense in a ton of ways. And you kind of just have to like, you know, understand it's not necessarily the most sexy position to play if you're playing in the middle. And, and it doesn't matter if you're a one technique or a three technique, you can still get double team either one. Um, you're going to be uh, very, very valuable for the defense. So USC just hasn't had many guys that have been able to be uh, that disruptive and have had the physical ability, you know, both in terms of quickness and athleticism, but also strength. Because that's, again, that's the thing. You're taking on a double team and you don't get pushed back into the linebackers because you're strong, you're able to anchor, and, um, you know, you're able to fight those offensive linemen. And that's the one thing that uh, USC just hasn't had a lot of guys. I mean, right now you're talking about the returners being Stanley Tofu and Tyrone Talele, and neither of those guys were playing defensive tackle out of high school. Um, you know, Teleni. Tyrone Teleni. Um, they were playing uh, kind of an outside linebacker spot uh, out of America, Samoa, uh, for Tyrone Talele, Telene. And you had uh, Stanley Tafu playing uh, middle linebacker for Grace Brethren up in CB Valley. And those guys are like 235, 240 pounds coming out of high school. So, you know, just <laughs> – <laughs> and they're now about 270 pounds. You know, they're not big guys now. So you're not having to double team those type of players. You, you, you're on the offensive line. It's like, all right, you just kind of move him out of the way and then we'll concentrate on this other guy. And, uh, and that means your linebackers are going to have to get involved. You're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to shift some guys around against the run. And uh, again, I think, um, you know, yards per carry big gains in the second half of games, are really where USC's got to tighten up. You know, there's got to be uh, a better uh, consistency there, you know, with the run and, and not having those types of drives where USC gets gashed and it sets up the team, uh, you know, all of a sudden the red zone. You know, you have a 30-yard run in the middle of a, a series. I mean, it just changes everything for you. 
So, um, you know, going back to your original question of comparisons and whatnot, I don't know if there's anybody that really, you know, compares. Again, I, I, maybe a Cedric Ellis, uh, because he was huge for USC, you know, when they got his commitment and he was a big time player uh, for them uh, in the middle. But you just haven't had too many guys uh, that were of that sort of physical build. And again, you know, really help USC get better, kind of a force multiplier, if you will, uh, because the, that position in the middle uh, can do a lot if he can demand double teams consistently. Bear puns. I like those. Gerard, we do have a little bit of breaking news that I'm just going to have to. Kind of deals with what we're talking right now with Bear Alexander, but Earl Barquette Jr. has entered the NCAA transfer portal. I know you were a fan of some things you saw from him from time to time, but do you have any reaction to Earl Barquette, who came to USC last season by way of TCU, 6'3", 285 pounds, never really broke into the rotation, looked like he was there early, very early last spring, but just kind of fell back into the deep reserves and scout team. Could have been an interesting three-tech, even one-tech player, but never, like I said, broke out. He does have the distinction of being the first transfer prospect to commit to Lincoln Riley when he came to USC, started off that number one overall transfer class from last season. He has entered the transfer portal, I assume, as a grad transfer. He has opened up one more spot for USC moving forward. Yeah, interesting because he was uh, one of the first transfers that they brought in and uh, they had an official visit and on film. He looked like a very prototypical type of Alex Grinch defensive lineman. Incredibly mobile, very agile. I liked what I saw from him last year. Didn't like what I saw from him in the spring game in limited reps, but certainly the fact that he had limited reps and didn't really get a lot of run just told me that for whatever reason, USC just wasn't buying into him. And so, um, you know, not a surprise on his part. Uh, wanting to transfer and, and get uh, more playing time somewhere else. Uh, now the interesting thing is, you know, he's transferring from TCU to USC, and now he's going to USC to where uh, obviously that might affect, um, you know, how how quickly he's able to get on the field if he's going to uh, another Power 5 program. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, that's a, a little bit of defensive line uh, depth that you're going to lose from a guy that's, um, you know, a, a – a decent player uh, on the defensive line, a, a guy that, like I said, I, I liked a lot more, I think than USC liked uh, when I saw him on film. And when I actually saw him in games, uh, he showed the ability to be disruptive. He's a very quick player off the football. And, you know, in the defense where you're moving guys around, you're using a lot of stunts, uh, that type of player can, can be very good for you. But, um, you know, he committed to USC, if I recall, before they even hired Sean knew as a defensive line coach. I believe Jamar Cain was the one that actually hosted him on his official visit to USC, which came, you know, December uh, after the season. And so, you know, part of that might be it, it have something to do with why he wasn't used and why he wasn't somebody that, uh, you know, maybe USC was 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 comfortable with. Um, they went in and, and recruited Tyrone uh, Telene and uh, obviously played him a lot more. Um, and he was uh, somewhat, you know, productive. I, I think USC's defensive line was serviceable last year. I think they actually kind of played above their heads to some extent, you know, in terms of talent-wise. 
Uh, but there needs to be just a, a, a lot more talent if they want to be able to go to that next level and get to a college football playoff uh, and, and win some games in a college football playoff. Uh, the, the defensive front that they had last year was not going to get them there. Yeah, right. Grizzly Adams had a beard. Grizzly Adams did have a beard. I actually don't know if Grizzly Adams has anything to do with bears, but I assume he does. But I just love that quote so much. And it kind of fits, so I went with it. But, yes, Earl Barquette in the transfer portal, another spot. Open. Gerard, I think we've spent a lot of time on the bears and defensive linemen. I think we can move on to the third commitment that we actually had to talk about for this podcast. And that is McKinney, Texas, 2024 running back Brian Jackson. Yes, this is out of the high school ranks. No, not a transfer portal. We talked about Brian Jackson before. We've talked about him many times. We felt confident that USC was the school that was going to land his commitment. Lo and behold, they did. So we have talked about him before. And he is the second commitment in the 2024 class, joining Joey Olson as the 2024 class tries to build up some of that momentum. Number 489 overall in the 24-7 sports composite. Number 47 athlete. Listed at six foot, 240 pounds, racked up 1,600 rushing yards last season with 23 touchdowns, was a breakout player, played at a very high level of Texas high school football, Division II, 6A, so really high competition level. You know, as I said, we've talked about him, so we don't want to rehash too much, but luckily for us, Coach B in San Diego sent in basically three questions he had about the running back room and Brian Jackson. So I just thought we would use coach B's questions here to kind of steer the conversation. when we talk about this new commitment, Brian Jackson, if that sounds good to you, Gerard. Yeah. Let's hear from coach B coach B. What up my dudes. Thank the football gods. Brian Jackson is my savior. I was thirsty for a commit and he delivered. I got love for deuce, but until he is enrolled, I am not relaxing my shoulders. Here's my questions slash talking points tangent for you can you talk a little bit about what jackson brings to the running back room and how it's different from the guys there already do you have any projections from when he will be able to compete for playing time are we looking at a potential trend in type of player usc will bring in at running back all purpose bk some big bodies down there i'm not really sure what bk stands for but british i would love what british knights British Knights, all-purpose backs, British Knights, and some big bodies back there. So what do you think, Gerard? I don't know if it signals anything other than USC wants to have some running backs that can move the pile. They want some guys with some lean. Uh, You know, Marshawn Lloyd, Austin Jones, uh, you know, everybody outside of really Brown is a, a running back that has 200 pounds plus on them. Now, Brian Jackson was talking about 240 pounds, or at least that was his last listing out of McKinney. Uh, you're talking about some guys that are power backs. And so, you know, USC, I don't get the sense that they're really looking for lightning right now because I think in that situation they would be recruiting Nate Frazier, you know, out of modern day high school, who somebody we've talked about earlier in the year and is kind of blown up and you know with that uh, scholarship offer from Georgia you know, Alabama's looking at him it's interesting that USC is not looking at him um, you know obviously with him at modern day last year he was moving from playing wide receiver and defensive back to playing running back so 
He certainly doesn't have the running back film that Brian Jackson has uh, or Taylor Tatum, the four-star running back out of Longview, who uh, will end up uh, officially visiting USC after he took an unofficial visit to USC a few weeks ago for the spring game. You have a big guys all around. Like none of those guys are really uh, speed backs, if you will, right? None of them are really all-purpose backs from that standpoint either. And even with Quentin Joyner, who's not big, uh, he's still a thick, strong, pretty powerful runner. And a guy that, um, you know, I think it was Gavin Morris who uh, put uh, an Instagram story up and he was talking about Quentin Joyner and Amarian Peterson being thunder and lightning. But hey, it's it's thunder and just louder thunder, in my opinion. I don't think mm-hmm. either of those guys is really a lightning guy. You know, lightning guys are, are sub 10-8 in my book uh, when it comes to speed. So uh, I don't think uh, Joyner is really quite that fast. Uh, I think Brown is that fast. But um, it's really a lot of guys that are powerful runners. They have fairly good hands out of the backfield. Uh, they, uh, you know, do a good job at pass protection because they have some size. That's the one thing that I didn't mention that I kind of forgot to mention about a Marion Peterson in the spring game, talking about my recruiting angle. He had some really good pass blocks in that game. He, he was a surprisingly good pass blocker uh, for being a freshman. And that's Austin Jones really complimented his pass blocking in spring camp saying he's very big, obviously, but he's also very patient for a freshman. And that's what makes his pass blocking so good at this age. A big deal getting on the field as a freshman, because you've got Caleb Williams back there and doesn't matter how good of a runner you are. If you got to make a check and all of a sudden you become a pass blocker, and you're not giving up the health of Caleb Williams to have a, a really good runner in there because you, in an RPO situation, might end up having to you know become a pass blocker all of a sudden. So um, I was impressed with Amirian Peterson. But you know when you have bigger running backs, that's always something that you tend to get. You know they're going to be able to stand up to a blitzing linebacker, and they're not going to get blown up and put right back in your quarterback's lap. So uh, from that standpoint, you know there's definitely that uh, trend in terms of going after you know, 200 pound plus running backs and uh, getting guys that are just sort of like all around pretty good in terms of stylistically, Brian Jackson, you don't film. I mean, he runs really well for a guy that that is that big. And um, you know, there were questions about, you know, could he be an H back type of guy? Uh, you know, maybe there's possibility that you, you know, you have two back sets with USC uses and they did this a little bit with the Marion Peterson it's not maybe just misdirection. Sometimes you may use one of those guys as a lead blocker. And when he's a bigger running back, he's going to be capable of doing that. You know, it's harder to do that with the relief Brown or what have you. I still like to have the, the, the potential of a game breaking, you know, sort of a guy that can take it 80 in the offensive backfield. Cause that sort of changes your dynamic a bit. Um, if you're a defense, you know, it's not just about, okay, this guy's faster. So, you know, we've got to be a little more cognizant to be able to contain on the outside. It's also one of those things that if you're a defense and you just slip up a little bit, you know, one of your guys just takes a bad angle. Uh, there's just a seam there, and you're able to to, to, to to have a running back go from, let's say, you know, Quentin Joyner takes it 20 yards. And really, Brown might take that 40 yards. You know, he might take that to the house. And that was the thing with Reggie Bush. Reggie Bush was able to also create plays where plays didn't exist 
So maybe you have a run play that gets stopped and he's able to reverse field. He has the speed and the acceleration, uh, the change of direction speed specifically, because it's one thing to be fast, but it's another thing to be able to be fast when you're actually changing direction. And Reggie Bush, the one thing that separated him is he never had to really slow down a whole lot when he made his cuts. And so if you have one of those guys, I mean, he can take a play that, you know, there's nothing there. And this is kind of true of Caleb Williams as well. And, you know, kind of freestyle a little bit and make a play. And all of a sudden, you know, something that was going to be a three-yard loss turns into being like a 25-yard gain. And again, college football, those type of plays can be the difference. You know, those type of plays uh, keep you on the field and all of a sudden change. They flip the field in terms of uh, field position. And so they are huge plays. And so I like to have those guys on the roster. And I like to know that I've got Rodney Brown there that, uh, you know, I can play at, at running back and gives me, you know, not just the change of pace, but actually gives me a guy with a little more creativity and speed to be able to bust uh, a run big. Uh, whereas you've got, you know, a lot of very good steady running backs in Quentin Joyner, Amarian Peterson, uh, Marshawn Lloyd, um, even Darren Barlow is one of those guys. It's very similar, you know, um, and I think when you look at Brian Jackson, you look at Taylor Tatum, and some of these other running backs at USC is recruiting, they all sort of have that in common. None of these guys are like, oh, my gosh, you know, they're so fast or they're so uh, creative in the open field or what have you. Most of these guys are, are, are doing something with decent holes that have been created, uh, but they break tackles, they have good vision, and they are guys that when they do have contact, they don't go down right away. Like you're going to have to tackle these guys, and they're going to make you tackle them. And that – in itself is something that once you get into the second half of games, you get in the fourth quarter, you get that Lindell White effect, you know, and, and Lindell White was Lindell White was playing at like 270 pounds in one of those Rose Bowl. He was huge. And I remember there was a play, uh, there was actually a game and they were playing Oregon at Oregon. And one of the defensive backs for Oregon talked about after the game, I was spitting up blood trying to tackle Lindell White at the end. Jesus. Of the game. Like we, he was just so hard to tackle. Like at that point in the game, he was just, and Lundell White wasn't one of those guys that was like looking to put his shoulder down against you and try to get guys heads up. He was real slippery for a big back. And he was just so big and strong and had decent speed for his size. that it's just like, how do you, how do you get that guy? You know, he doesn't have handles. Some running backs have good handles and you can just square them up and you can tackle them. And a guy like Lindell White just had no handles, and he was very slippery for a guy that big. And USC doesn't necessarily have that guy. Maybe Brian Jackson could be that guy. Uh, he's not quite as tall as Lindell, but he might be that guy because he's not a guy that necessarily um, – he does more in the open field and doesn't give you a lot of uh, ability to kind of angle and square him up. You know, he does shift around a little bit and, and make some good plays. And a guy that's, you know, 235, 240 pounds, it's hard to tackle him at the side or at an angle or try to get him, um, you know, when he's able to sort of change up on you a little bit and uh, you don't have that ability to just make a form tackle on him. The next question is, can you talk about the recruiting impact of getting my guy Bry away from some of some big time SEC schools? Also, can you talk about the impact this will have with his teammate Riley Pettyjohn and his recruitment? Riley Pettyjohn is a, you, a linebacker in the 2025 class that USC offered top 100 
consensus in both the 24-7 sports composite and 24-7 sports rankings. Number 54 overall, number nine linebacker, 6'2", 205 pounds. He's a guy, and I think it will have significant impact because USC got Petty John on campus for that baller bash weekend with Brian McKinney. And now that Brian McKinney is a commit, you know, he's going to be taking at least one more visit for his official visit. And getting Riley on campus will be big, and it helps that you will have someone on campus that he knows that he's familiar with, that he went to high school with, just to be able to, you know, be in his ear, do text messages, check in and stuff. So, yeah, I think it's significant. Does that doesn't automatically obviously mean that Petty John is going to be a Trojan or anything like that, but they've at least got their foot in the door with him getting him on campus for the baller bash. And then just furthering that sort of McKinney connection with Brian Jackson in the fold already, it can only help at that point. And in terms of getting Brian Jackson away from SEC schools. Yes, if you don't know, his offer list is pretty extensive. You know, Arkansas, Alabama, Georgia, Missouri, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Notre Dame. I know those aren't SEC schools, but still. Now, just wanted to point out, just because he has all those offers doesn't mean we don't know, like, how, like, when was the last time Georgia was talking to him or when was the last time Ohio State was talking? We don't know that to an extent, so... Just because they have that offer doesn't mean, you know, strictly USC, quote unquote, did beat out those schools. As Gerard likes to say, anyone can get an offer. It's like a business card these days. It's it's nothing more than that. But, you know, it is an impressive offer list. Some schools obviously saw something in him. So I don't I wouldn't look too much into that. You know, Kyle McDonald likes his guys, doesn't really care about the offer list or what offers they have. If it's a guy he likes on tape, it's a guy he wants to go after, that's who he's going to go after. Yeah, I think that's well said. I think you covered most of what I would say. Uh, certainly the part with the offers, I wouldn't necessarily get caught up in that. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, Texas A&M and Texas weren't real involved with Brian Jackson, so that's always something that you kind of note and you put uh, in your back pocket. Uh, but you know what? Texas A&M and Texas uh, nor Oklahoma – nor LSU were really involved with the Marion Peterson. And you kind of yeah. wondered, why not? Because, I mean, we watched this film. Like, he looks like a really good player. Now, he <laughs> is um, completely invisible and uh, off the radar, and he might not be a real guy, but, uh, you know, maybe that was part of it. You know, maybe it was one of those things where Kyle McDonald had uh, the plug and uh, was able to get in on that connection and sort of shut everybody out. Uh, but, uh, you know, with Quentin Joyner, that was one that Texas was kind of fooling around a little bit with. Uh, but they got other commitments. So, yeah, the story of the recruitment is not necessarily always what you see on the profile page. Sometimes it's a little different than that. So uh, I, I think this is just one that USC really liked. And, uh, again, you know, Kyle McDonald has a very good rep right now. He's got a great rep for evaluation, and he's got a great rep for coaching up his guys, which is, you know, obviously – a big part of it, you know, we can talk about getting five-star guys all day long, but player development is is a huge deal. And so you want to bring in the guys that uh, you feel can fit your system and uh, get better within your system. And so certainly that's something that USC saw immediately with Brian Jackson because they were on him pretty hard from the get-go, you know, interestingly enough. Um, now, you know, how it affects future recruits. I mean, you, you did mention that he's also got another teammate there at McKinney. Uh, Xavier Bizami, who uh, unofficially visited USC that weekend as well, five-star safety, who after the unofficial visit to USC with Brian Jackson, uh, 
turned around and committed to Florida. So you never know how these things are, are going to go, um, you know, the, the impact of one player with another player. Uh, but, you know, it's not a bad thing. It, it doesn't hurt them. And, you know, maybe Bozami is a guy that uh, ends up taking an official visit to USC uh, down the line. You know, if the, if the defense, you know, improves or there's something different there that he sees. Obviously, he didn't mind leaving home, you know, to go to Texas from Florida. Uh, but I also know that uh, I think he's Haitian descent as well. So he might have a bunch of family there in Florida, not a huge Haitian community in Southern California. So that also might have something to do with it. But nevertheless, um, I think when we're just talking about Brian Jackson and what he brings to the table for USC, it's another big back. It's another guy that signals the future of the offense and, and going into the Big Ten could be much more uh, run-driven and dominant than maybe any other of Lincoln Riley's offenses, you know, to, to date. And so you're probably going to need a little more of that, you know, how much more remains to be seen, but you're going to need more of that because there's going to be games. You're going to be playing on the road in the big 10 going to be November. And it is not going to be 82 degrees outside like it is Southern California. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're just going to have to have those guys that, um, you know, the defense is going to know what's coming. Uh, the offense knows what they're going to do. Everybody's going to be there at the line of scrimmage on 32, and maybe it's a you know 24-21 game, and uh, you know the wind is kicking up, and it's like, listen, you know we, we just don't want to put the ball in the air. We got to get this third and two. And when you got a guy that's 240 pounds as a running back, he's got some good lateral feet, uh, he's got good vision, and uh, he's got good quickness. He's going to be able to hit that hole, and even if there's a guy there that's ready to tackle him, he can lean forward for that yard, that two yards, and that's invaluable. You know, having those type of running backs that can do that, and that's Really, like if you're looking for a trend, that's the trend. It's the, you know, what Kennedy Palomalu, when he came back to USC, it was like, where do I find these 200 pound plus running backs? We bought a, a bunch of guys that are 190 pounds and they're fast and everything, but we're getting killed at the line of scrimmage because our guys are going down immediately. There's no yards after the run. And, you know, that can be the difference between moving the change and having to punt the ball. So uh, USC has a, a stable of guys right now that are capable of moving the chains. And uh, that's, that's a big deal because it gives three more downs, if not four more downs for Caleb Williams to, to work his magic and all those wide receivers and, and all those weapons you have, you know, it just gives you more opportunities, more chances to get in the end zone. Taking a quick break from coach B and his final question, we had a question from Sir Eric of Troy that kind of fit into that second point. My question is for the recruiting guru, Gerard Martinez, how is it that a three-star running back like Brian Jackson can have offers from several powerhouses from the likes of USC, Alabama, Georgia, Notre Dame, et cetera? Or maybe a better question would be, why would a running back like Brian Jackson with so much attention from major programs only have three stars? Really curious about this one. Fight on, guys. And that, again, that's from Sir Eric of Troy. Remember, offers doesn't equate star ranking. Just, just want to remind people of that it is – Impressive to have an offer list like that. But again, and a three-star prospect also doesn't mean, you know, that you're a bad player. A three-star prospect is still a highly regarded player. I mean, obviously, it's no two-star player, obviously. But, you know, the, the, the offer list doesn't necessarily reflect a star ranking. And again, just going back to Kyle McDonald, remember Quentin Joyner wasn't as highly rated as he finished. And by the end of the cycle, he had blown up in terms of the rankings. Same thing with Braylon Shelby. 
uh, Quentin ended up being a All-American at the end of the year. So what they're ranked now isn't obviously a reflection of where they're going to be ranked at the end of the season. There's still plenty of time for him to blow up, if you will. Exactly. And I think offers don't mean anything. Right? They really are kind of a sort of, okay, I'm getting on the radar. Schools are watching my film. And they want to get their foot in the door with that recruitment if potentially they feel like that's a player they want to earmark to continue to recruit. Like you said earlier, you know how much contact did Georgia have with Brian Jackson up until the end, Alabama, these schools that offered him, not a whole lot to my knowledge. I think that uh, he was you know, focused on other schools. Other schools were focused on him. And I think, like I said, USC wasn't very hesitant with him. And you know, you really just have to kind of ignore that. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily ignore the rankings because we have found that, you know, stars do matter. They do matter at the end of the day and the better schools are probably going to have the more five stars and four stars on it. But the track record with Kyle McDonald, I think with Brian Jackson committing to USC, it's going to turn some heads in Texas, you know, as it did uh, to, to some extent with Amir Peterson, because he was also not ranked very high and he moved up uh, the rankings over time. And he was at a smaller school. You know, he was in Wichita Falls, Texas, and uh, not at a school which a lot of people got to see a lot. With McKinney, uh, you're going to you're gonna get a lot more exposure. And so I think, you know, this year, Brian Jackson will go out there. People are going to look at him. They've got several other players on that team that are good football players, and he'll get his due, you know, if he continues to play well and uh, he's committed to USC. And, you know, this is sort of the – in the industry – the ratings sort of recycle themselves to some extent because once a school is shown to identify talent and those guys get out and they get drafted, then the experts also in hindsight start looking at who those schools are evaluating because you know that they know what they're talking about, right? And so, you know, Kyle McDonald is one of those guys, he did that at Utah and now he's doing it at USC. And the more good players uh, that are turning out to be very productive players in college and are able to go on in the next level, you know, he is, and, and probably to, uh, to his chagrin, uh, going to gain a lot more attention from people when he offers a scholarship, mm -hmm. you know, he's sort of an evaluator, I think to some extent nationally, at least probably not so much regionally, but guys like Greg Biggins and, and Blair Angulo, but nationally, you know, not the known commodity. And, and once you start to see USC turning out players, into the NFL, that will change. Because you got to understand, USC, uh, there's been some guys that they've recruited in the past with past staffs, and, you know, the, the national guys have gotten burned. And whether that's because those players just turned out to be bust uh, or those players just didn't get the proper player development and they got drafted, but they ended up being undrafted free agents or they went lower, uh, guys like Amon Marshall, uh, guys like, you know, maybe Corey Foreman right now, uh, not necessarily playing up to being a five-star. That makes, you know, the national guys a little bit gun-shy when a player goes to a school and it becomes sort of a black hole, if you will, for top-rated recruits. So, yeah, it's one of those things that uh, it, it, that takes time and, and it, it takes, uh, you know, some classes to come and go. And you see the production and you see the development. And all of a sudden, you know, the opinion changes right away. You know, if you get a scholarship offer from Georgia, it obviously means a lot because why? Georgia has had a bunch of running backs that have gone there and they've turned out for the NFL. So 
if uh, Georgia is recruiting you as a running back, uh, you know, people are pretty confident that's going to be a good running back. And the final question, going back to Coach B and SD, finally, GM, what's the history of USC and McKinney High School? Names seems to be popping up a lot. Who are some names that you have seen over the years come through that program? Any one of note for USC, any future guys? Well, Riley Pettyjohn is someone we talked about, and his teammate, Xavier Phyllis, say it again? Philzami? Philzami are two guys now. One just committed to Florida, as Gerard mentioned. But I mistakenly thought Ronald Jones had come from McKinney, but as Gerard corrected me, he came from North McKinney High School. Yeah, and that's the only guy that I remember USC landing out of McKinney, Texas. I'm sure they've recruited and they've offered other players in the past, but uh, nobody jumps off um, the radar of being somebody that USC was involved with seriously, uh, at least recently. And certainly, you know, they haven't recruited Texas as hard um, since you had the Clay Helton era going into the Lincoln Riley era because, you know, those are Texas guys. But previously, you know, they had other honey holes and other places that they would recruit harder, whether it was Florida, like the Tampa area because of Lane Kiffin and, and that relationship uh, with Monty, uh, or uh, going into, you know, New Jersey when you had Tom McNair uh, on the coaching staff and he was from Camden, New Jersey. Um, you, you know, you, you recruit what you know and, and the backgrounds and the connections that you have, especially if you're territorial recruiters. And Kyle McDonald has is, is really been a, a kind of a territorial recruiter for USC in North Texas. You know, you got to remember, he was the one that actually turned out Grinch on to Aaron Flowers, the safety uh, out of uh, Forney, Texas. Um, it was him that, that visited Forney, Texas, the high school, and came across Aaron Flowers and said, hey, you know what? You know, he looks like a good player. Um, Alex Grinch, you should come down and visit and check him out for yourself. And so uh, with USC right now, it's kind of a combination of territorial recruiting, positional recruiting. Uh, they're kind of just, you know, uh, doing a little bit of both. You know, Sean Nua will go back east to go recruit a guy like Sam Green. And then he'll recruit, you know, whoever else is at St. Francis while he's there. But that's more for position. I, I don't think that's necessarily like a regional thing for him. Um, this uh, uh, past uh, week, you know, USC hit the road again. And you've got Roy Manning out there in Connecticut and in the back east. Why? Because he's going out there looking for defensive ends. And I think, uh, you know, he'll also go down to San Diego and he'll recruit some guys. And, and you know, sometimes those guys end up being uh, defensive players, maybe outside linebackers, sometimes they're defensive backs. And then you hand them over to that position coach to develop that relationship if that's a player that you're going to green light and you're going to start recruiting hard. And he wrapped it up. Coach B did by saying, mad love for both of you. I will miss the podcast in the offseason, but I am happy for you taking time off. From a one from one degenerate to the one-year crew to another, thank you for your service. Thank you, Coach B, and always asking questions. Gerard, I think that will close the book on one Brian Jackson. Let's talk briefly about some updates for the second portal window, and then we'll take our break. Well, we just mentioned, you know, Earl Barquette, a little bit of that breaking news. He has entered the portal and he is the only one that has entered the portal since the last time we talked about the Trojans in terms of that. The last one being Joshua Jackson, who entered. So not a very deep list of entrants for USC in terms of entry. I believe it's only about four right now. 
Uh, Malcolm Epps, Cortland Ford, Joshua Jackson, and now Earl Barquette. We see if that we'll see if that changes as we come up on the final days of the portal. The other note that I had is that Alabama cornerback transfer Traquan Fagans. I confirmed with him that he is going to be taking an official visit. He scheduled that for early May. He is a former four-star prospect in the 2022 class. Entered the portal, has had some uh, interest from a bunch of schools across the country. And looks like USC is going to get one of those visits. Now, again, the visits in portal, you know, having a later visit, you know, isn't that great because things could be wrapped up by visit one or two. So we'll see where that falls in terms of the visit scale. But as we've talked about, USC seemed to want to get another defensive back in the high school class. We'll see if they'll try to address that in the transfer class. It seems like they have targeted Fagan's as a possible addition moving forward. Yeah, another one of those big cornerbacks, and they've kind of looked at those guys even out of the high school ranks. I mean, interestingly, we talked a little bit about this, you know, going back to Aaron Flowers and missing out on that commitment to Oregon. Now, he's a safety, but USC in the 2022 class you know, that cycle, they were recruiting a bunch of those players that were guys who played cornerback at high school but were rated as safeties, and there was like four different players that they went after, and they missed all of them. And so 2023 comes around. They go after Aaron Flowers. They missed out on him. He commits to Oregon. Old Miss safety transfer, Braxton Myers is in the portal, and Braxton Myers is one of those players in the 2022 cycle, uh, the original that actually commit to USC who 6'1", 190 pounds, um, played cornerback at uh, Capel High School, and yet was a guy that really most felt like was going to be a safety uh, at the college level. And so USC was recruiting him, talking to him about playing boundary corner. He ends up, he's back in the portal. Uh, USC could make a move here. He would be interested. Uh, I've talked to Braxton Myers. And, um, you know, that uh, I don't know if he's actually shown up in the portal yet. Uh, I don't know if his paperwork has like gone through or what have you. Uh, but um, evidently he is pretty determined to, to transfer out. And so uh, he would consider USC uh, from what I understand. And, um, you know, Jalil Tucker is another guy that USC recruited. And uh, they were going after in that 2021 class. It was he and Jalil Florence, the two Jalils out of Lincoln High School in San Diego, uh, ironically recruited uh, originally by Roy Manning and had a really good relationship with Roy Manning, but interestingly did not have a great relationship with Dante Williams. Uh, Dante had not really recruited them. Uh, they were uh, you know, on other players like Damani Jackson, and uh, they had some other guys on the board. And um, you know, it kind of shifted over and started recruiting uh, the two Jalils a little more and um, they both end up going to Oregon. Jalil Florence actually took an official visit to USC, and it looked like he was maybe going to uh, commit to USC before the early signing period, but decided to wait. Ends up um, sticking with Oregon, even with all their coaching changes and what have you. Uh, but his teammate, Jalil Tucker, who was uh, the faster, the, really the speedster of the two, ends up jumping in the porthole last week. And now so he's back up. For the portal, so there are some uh, defensive back recruits uh, that have some talent. Um, again, I always talk about evaluating based more on 
college production than nostalgia out of high school and watching high school film because guys have injuries. Uh, you know, there's another thing even going back to Barry Alexander, not to jump around too much on the docket for our listeners, but, you know, Barry Alexander did have that labrum surgery uh, that, uh, you know, kind of sidelined him for spring ball originally his freshman year. Now he obviously recovered from that, played the whole year for, uh, for Georgia, but you have to be very, very cognizant uh, and try to vet as much as you possibly can. And I don't know what the vetting process is medically. I don't know exactly what they're allowed to do. Um, it might be just up to the transfer, you know, and the recruit, what tests they want to run or what have you. But you got to be very careful because, you know, USC almost got caught holding the bag on Ethan White because, you know, he ends up you know, potentially medically retiring is from what we're hearing. And it was only because he wasn't enrolled that USC isn't on the hook for that scholarship. So if you bring in somebody who's injured and they enroll and they end up going the way of Isaiah Sopcher or Jake Smith, uh, two players that transferred to USC under Clay Helton and never played really any down. I mean, Jake Smith, I don't think he actually practiced with the team. Sopcher, I think, got one or two snaps in his time at USC. If those guys just decide, hey, I'm chilling, I'm good at USC, I don't want to transfer, I don't want to play football anymore, uh, then they're on your 85 roster until they academically um, leave uh, the school. And so, you know, USC kind of dodged the bullet there with Ethan White um, not having him actually, you know, on that 85. And so uh, that's something that you got to keep in mind with all these guys. And, again, you know, look at you know, any type of reflections as to why they weren't playing. Now, I asked around about Frank uh, on Fegans specifically and heard pretty good things, you know, that, that it wasn't a guy that Alabama necessarily was trying to process and trying to uh, get out of the program. Uh, but it was just one of those things where he wasn't getting snaps. Kind of sounded like Barry Alexander where, you know, he was getting some snaps, but he just wasn't getting enough snaps and didn't feel like he was going to be able to make a impact on the team in the near future and is looking around to feel like where he could, you know, get some traction and get on the field early. Now, is that going to be USC? USC's got some guys there, right? USC's got some players at defensive back, and, and those young guys are now getting a little older, and you've got a lot of promise in Damani Jackson. Uh, you're, you're hoping that, uh, you know, Christian Wallace ends up being a guy that can play. You know, he pops up and comes in, um, you know, for spring ball and he can't play because he's got an injury. So you're hoping that that doesn't become something that, uh, you know, lingers into fall. Uh, but you've got, uh, you know, a good showing from Jacoby Covington. Uh, obviously, Sierra Wright, USC, is, is, is very excited about in the future. So you've got, you know, some, some dudes there, you know, Latrell. McCutcheon, uh, a little more of an inside guy, a little more of a safety, but nevertheless, you know, came to Oklahoma as one of the top defensive back, top, top cornerbacks in his class. And so, you know, you've got some talent there in the secondary and got some players. So that's also something that, you know, it becomes a little bit more of an obstacle uh, in, in trying to get transferred, you know, and, and why maybe, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, some of those schools are still, you know, strategy-wise or focuses going after the top high school players and really just sprinkling in a few transfers here and there. And with that, Gerard, I think it's time that we take our break of the show. We come back, we're going to talk about Deion Sanders in Colorado, some top schools list, some scheduled official visits, and then we'll wrap it all, wrap it all up with some listener questions. So we'll be right back after this break.
from producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. Kiss the Future. New documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply. Baseball has begun, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today in 5, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Sample, every Monday through Saturday as we deliver all of your fantasy baseball needs in just five minutes. We'll break down the biggest performers, news, and prospects who could make an impact this season. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Gerard, do you know who Grizzly Adams is? No, I heard the name. I think it's probably a television star from the 70s. That sounds that sounds right. I would say 60s, but yeah, that sounds right. I, I was just curious. I was oh, ready to like play know? that. <laughs> you were I don't know. No, I was just ready to play that. And then you like make fun of me for not knowing who that is. I'm oh. sure a lot of Peristyle users are going to make fun of us for uh, not knowing who that is. But. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure it has something to do with with bears, though. So that's why I had to do it. Yeah, I just picture a guy yeah, that kind of right. looks like... Grizzly Adams had a beard. Grizzly Adams did have a beard. Uh, that line spoken by Shooter McGavin and Lee Trevino. So it works. A fellow cilantro boy. It works. It works all the way around, Drake. I thought that was Norm MacDonald, actually. No. <laughs> that line, I was like, I don't know what bit that was, but... Yeah, Grizzly Adams, I could just picture like a Daniel Boone kind of guy with a beard and what have you, but I don't really know what movie or show that would be. 70s is before my time, so yeah, that's a little bit uh, earlier than the, the Hurricanes uh, lexicon for TV nostalgia and trivia. Let's get back into the recruiting podcast. Uh, we're going to actually move the Colorado stuff down below. I just want to get rid of some... Uh, Small recruiting updates that we have here. First one being Longview, Texas running back Taylor Tatum, the number one, excuse me, the number two running back in the country for the 2024 cycle. He released his top seven. Uh, USC, no surprise, has made that. He's visited multiple times, including most recently for the spring game. He has scheduled an official visit for June 2nd. Then Draper, Utah offensive tackle Isaiah Garcia has also scheduled a official visit for that June 2nd weekend. Remember that June 17th, that 15th through 18th weekend is going to be the mega kind of golden hour recruiting visits. So these two are coming a little bit earlier that first week of, of June visits. They're going to be on the, the, the visit together. Uh, so a big offensive tackle and a big running back target for the Trojans. Come into the town on June 2nd, Gerard. Yeah, June 2nd, you know, it's it, it maybe it gives June 16th, 17th a little run for its money. You know, we're not okay. necessarily sure. I mean, Zabian Brown, um, you have yes, yes, some, yes. some guys there. You know, you're bringing in Taylor Tatum. And right now that seems to be a USC-Michigan battle. And a lot of people kind of feel like Michigan is maybe going to be the leader there. Uh, but USC has had him on campus now, uh, you know, two different times. And it seems like the way USC is recruiting, they feel pretty confident about Taylor Tatum. You know, if you're looking – between the lines and you're trying to kind of read the read uh, USC has not expanded the running back recruiting target list very much. Now you still have Jason Brown, uh, the uh, running back out of Seattle uh, who we've seen uh, 
several times. He's been to USC twice and uh, had a pretty good review of his uh, latest unofficial visit to USC. You talked to him at uh, the Passing Down Best of the West just recently. You had Christian Clark, who was also uh, unofficially visited USC uh, earlier in the spring and, and, and spoke highly of USC. And that's kind of it, right? That's not really a big uh, list of guys. It's a small board. It's a small board. Yeah, it, comparing to, you know, maybe last year around this time where, you know, USC was 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 kind of moving and shaking, trying to get more guys on campus. seemed like they were pushing to try to get uh, more uh, potential uh, official visitors during the summer. And then obviously before um, the summer, you kind of, it, it basically around this time is when you started shutting things down and they got serious with uh, Quentin Joyner and Amirian Peterson, who I think Amirian Peterson actually did end up committing during the spring game because I was talking to Braxton Myers to bring him up again, who was committed at the time. And I remember that it was kind of a, a funny thing because I, I asked him, we said, did you talk to Miriam Peterson down uh, at, at the game? Because, uh, you know, I, I really didn't know much about him and didn't really hear much about him. And, uh, you know, we had tried to contact him after he made that uh, commitment, you know, just to kind of try to get some quotes and, and see, you know, wh- why USC was the school for him and didn't get anything. And Braxton Myers like, yeah, I heard about that. And I don't know where he was. I never saw him. I don't even, I don't, I, yeah, that was like surprise to all of us. And that, I was like, oh, well, okay. That's, that's really interesting. Um, so um, nevertheless, yeah, this was around the time of year where USC started to kind of, I think, figure out, okay, these are the guys that we like, and these are the guys that we have a good shot at. And so we're going to sort of start prioritizing, uh, prioritizing our board. And, um, you know, maybe that's kind of what they're doing now. You know, Taylor Tatum at this point, uh, is uh, the only one that has an official visit set to USC. I think they will get an official visit from Jason Brown. I, I think that that there's there's a good possibility there. Uh, Christian Clark a little more up in the air, um, and it's hard to know if he's really uh, on, as high up on the board as those other two. And so you know you already got one guy commit. You're looking for uh, maybe another potential running back uh, in the class. It would be um, two classes where you're you know you're you're stacking those double commitments at the running back position, which is something that, you know, again, USC has struggled to do under Clay Helton. You know, they've struggled to to get those multi-running back classes, and they really needed those guys. And, you know, you kind of, when you look at those teams that are in the college football playoff year in and year out, they've got two, three guys, every class that they're getting committed. You know, Alabama goes through, you know, like 10 guys in four years that the, uh, they usually have committing at the running back position. So, this is something that should be the expectation. It should be the norm, not the exception for USC. Yeah, I think Christian Clark is going to take an official visit to USC. And actually, Kyle McDonald was on campus at Mount Point earlier this week. So they're still, you know, in there for him. And I think they're going to get him on campus this summer for that official visit. He's going to lock that in. I don't know the official date. I know he's got one for uh, Texas and Georgia already set. Uh, so we'll see when that when that one happens. I think it's going to be at the end of May before things get going. So, yeah, we'll see what that running back broom is getting to shape up and who is going to join Brian Jackson for this uh, 2024 class. The other part of the June 17th weekend I did want to break up, there was two more additions for that quote-unquote golden hour part two, one being – Lake Oswego, Oregon tight end, the commit, Joey Olson. He has slated his official visit for then, you know, to help out with recruiting. I would assume Brian Jackson might be in there as well. 
Oh, excuse me. He is already in there. We already talked about that. So both the commits are coming for that June 17th weekend. And then Chatsworth, California four-star local wide receiver Xavier Jordan has announced that he will be taking his official visit that weekend as well. Just wanted to give those two quick updates. Gerard, unless there's anything you want to add, I'm going to move on to some new offers. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, as I mentioned, you know, with Kyle McDonald being at Mountain Point, the coaches are on the road for the next couple of weeks during the spring evaluation period. And as a result, some new offers have been thrown out there. I'm just going to read off some of those real quick. Uh, Sarah Lynn, Alabama, 2025 wide receiver Ryan Williams. Birmingham, Alabama, 2025 defensive end Jared Smith. Philadelphia, 2025 defensive lineman Maxwell Roy. All of those guys are four stars or higher. In the 2024 class, we have Converse, Texas, 2024 defensive back Miles Davis, and then Royceford, Pennsylvania, 2024 offensive tackle Kevin Haywood, and then just today, 2024 Salem, Virginia linebacker Chris Cole got an offer, six foot three, three, 210 pounds, a three-star out of Salem, Virginia in the 2024 class. The most significant one there is Ryan Williams. He is considered a five-star prospect, the number one wide receiver in the 2025 class. He is the consensus number one receiver in the 2025 class. And he is also an Alabama commit. So you see USC throwing their hat in the ring for a talented skill position player. And obviously his nickname is Ryan Hollywood Williams. So you have to figure USC could at least catch the interests of a guy who goes by the name Hollywood Gerard. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, there at the end that he was committed to Alabama. The kind of kind of Alabama kid committed to Alabama early, you know, yeah, good to mention that. Fair, fair, fair enough. But I just want to say Hollywood, you know, at least maybe they can get him on campus for a visit and and and, and see what's good there. Just wanted to throw that out there. Gerard, moving on, we have a couple more kind of small subjects before we get into the Colorado. Uh, talking point at the end before we get into questions. Two things. One of them I forgot to bring up for the last episode, but I really wanted to get your opinion on it. The first one, though, is that IMG Academy sold for $1.2 billion. Yes, $1.2 billion. So not really sure what's going to happen there. And then the other point is that the NCAA is moving towards giving unlimited official visits for kids. And what the heck is that going to mean, Gerard? So you can jump in at any point you want to talk about first. Well, we can talk about the unlimited official visits and that change in the rule, which was kind of out of nowhere. I don't remember them really talking about this so much. It's been talked about behind the scenes, but there was a few different things on their docket that the NCAA had discussed in a meeting just about a month ago. And this wasn't actually on it, among the things. And we talked about that on the podcast. Uh, But it's something that does tie into the whole officials versus unofficials debate. And when you have NIL and you have collectives that are, you know, low-key paying for visits (laughs) and making unofficial visits, official visits in in, in most uh, aspects, then it kind of doesn't really matter if there is a a number there or not, you know, if it's unlimited or not. Now, kids can obviously not take official visits more than once to a school unless there is a a coaching change, and then they can take uh, a second official visit to that school. But, I mean, what it does is it um, potentially 
draws out the process a little more for other kids because you can always take another visit somewhere else, right? <laughs> there's, there's always that potential for those guys like Eric Lord who, you know, just can't kind of make up their mind. There's always some other school that you could visit to murky the, the water even more, you know, that, that can muddy up things even more and give you even uh, more indecisiveness as to what you're looking for in a school. Um, is it necessary? Is it needed? I think at this point in time, most recruits don't even take all five official visits. I think in most of these instances, um, most kids get it done two to three visits. And by the fifth official visit, uh, they're done. And, and certainly the calendar is, is, is a big deal here because if you still got the same calendar and kids are trying to fit these official visits in, and we see this during the summer. You get five official visits. Kids want to make a decision before the end of August, before their senior season starts. Well, you really only have three, maybe you could squeeze in like four weeks where you can take official visits during the weekend. Uh, so you have to do midweek visits if you want to take all five official visits during the summer. And kids... And their families learn really quickly that is uh, a breakneck schedule and you are just jet lagged and it's, it's really hard to get the most out of each of those visits. So really the best way is to spread them out. But, you know, they want to make that decision before the start of their senior seasons. And you've got a big dead period there from July and August into September. So that's going to be partly going to impact some of this. Uh, now, there is talk that, uh, you know, the NCAA is going to make some rules where kids can take official visits maybe earlier. Um, obviously, the contact period is opening up earlier in their junior, into their sophomore seasons. So it might be one of these deals where uh, they open up the calendar for contact period just in general, where kids can take official visits, maybe even their junior year, uh, which obviously would change the game to some extent. Um, you know, you know, when do you want an official visit if it's going to be all the way into a junior year and, uh, you know, you only get that one official visit. It's like, holy cow, you know, do you even remember that school at that point? You know, you've seen so many other schools in, in, in the, in the course of a year. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of questions as to, you know, how these are divided up and, and when you're able to take all these visits, uh, do you take an official visit every weekend of the year? Um, obviously your high school coach is not going to like that if you just want to go see games during the season and take an official <laughs> visit every weekend right. uh, and you're taking red eyes out every Friday. You know, there's there's questions. I, I actually, I mean, I don't think it's really that big a deal. I think it's really more of a nod, again, to the fact that the NCAA, they recognize that uh, there's really no unofficial visits anymore. I mean, there still are some unofficial visits because, you know, not all of these kids are going to get their trips paid for. They're just not going to be rated high enough. They're they're not going to demand that type of cachet to where somebody's going to say, hey, you know, let's bring you in. But a lot of these unofficial visits anymore are, are sort of package deals where you have outfits of seven-on-seven seven teams and, and club teams that bring in a whole bunch of guys. And that's, you know, the kids are not paying for that. That's really paid for by the seven-on-seven uh, seven teams and, and those outfits. And, you know, who sponsors that? Well, you know, of course, it's um, uh, people. And then they have no affiliation whatsoever with any colleges. And none of them went to college, in fact. Wink, wink. So, yeah, I mean, all of this stuff is is sort of, um, it, it's it's like the genie's out of the bottle. And it's and it's just the NCAA, like, yeah, whatever. 
<laughs> at this point, it's, it's uh, you know, how are we going to regulate something that we can't regulate? Uh, but again, I think really more than anything, it's like, you know, you can have unofficial visits, but if the, the period of time you can take those visits is limited, then it's still going to limit the amount that you can actually take. But if everyone can get an official visit, doesn't that make them useless at a certain point? It used to be like, no, because well, it used to be like, this is the five, like get to work to get one of those coveted five. And now it doesn't matter. Well, kids are not going to narrow down things, maybe, you know, because they could always have another official visit. That's so they can do a top 13 list and they everyone can get an official visit on a top 13 list. It, it would be, again, tough from a calendar standpoint. Like, when are you going to get? all those visits in if you can't start taking visits until you know like late april may into the into june and you've got school right so you can't just you know take official visits all the time the coaches um usually don't host a lot of official visits during may because they're on the road uh doing may evaluations which has been you know now pushed all the way to more like january when they have that evaluation period so there's less evaluation going on in may because you do have the transfers which USC has used these past two weekends to bring in transfers. And it's big, you know, some of these schools are still uh, playing their spring games, you know? So it's like, you want to have guys on an official visit to during your spring game. That's going to be, you know, something that continues to evolve over the next few years as well. You know, how much are the coaches going to be on the road anymore? And how much is that going to be focused on the second window of the transfer portal? And if you want to use that month more for official visits, well, then you can't have your coaches on the road. I mean, it's going to be pretty, pretty hectic for them to be across the country. And then they got to fly back on a Thursday to be in SoCal for the weekend. And then they're going to have to fly back, you know, wherever they're going on a Monday. So you're going back and forth, back and forth. I mean, normally those guys stay out there on the road. You know, they, they just they're, they're back and forth um, only, you know, a few times during that 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 sort of. Uh, trip cycle, if you will. And they've got friends and family and places. I mean, they, they, they know those territories because they're from those territories. So a lot of times, you know, there's, there's also um, a lot of socializing that goes on uh, with some of these trips, um, you know, to see uh, family and other, and other people. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I, I think official visits are still important because you're still getting kids to get on your campus and you're getting in front of them and you're able to show them a good time. And, uh, you know, that's always going to be a big deal for a school, right? As opposed to not getting an official visit. It's just the read is going to be harder because, you know, when you have five, it's usually going to be really down to two or three. Uh, now that you have infinite, <laughs> if you will, uh, the read now is like, okay, this kid could literally take seven to ten official visits so what is it really down to who, who are we really down to and if you're the first one to get an official visit um and you can't get in the second official visit unless you know your head coach leaves or what have you um does that does that player really even remember you know you uh, it, it's it it's tough it's tough it's it's going to be more difficult from that standpoint um but we'll see you know we'll see what happens in terms of like you know getting the last visit in that situation seems like it'd be that much more important. If the kid's taking seven official visits, yeah, you want to be like the sixth or seventh official visit because by the time he's that far into the process, he probably forgot some of the stuff he did on his first official visit. And the other point that I mentioned 
IMG Academy being sold for $1.2 billion, an all-cash deal. I really don't know what this means for the future of IMG Academy. I just thought it was interesting as obviously IMG Academy has produced a lot of athletes across many different sports. It is basically a sports boarding school. It was sold to a private equity firm that manages international schools in 33 countries. Just a very weird thing to sell a high school for $1.2 billion. But then again, IMG is much more than a high school. But just an interesting factoid. Doesn't really matter, I guess, because USC can't recruit IMG anyway. But just an interesting thing on the landscape of high school sports. Britton Allen, baby. Britton Allen. Well, I think (laughs) in the grand scheme of things, if you're looking at this harder, why this sold is it sold because of access. It's access to young elite athletes. And I believe this Swedish company already had a model built for this in Europe. I think what it does for the football team is you've got a European company that is running things. So you do wonder if they're going to put the same emphasis on American football. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, But what IMG did was give IMG from a talent representation standpoint a foothold in to some of the younger players uh, that are coming through high school. And this is something that's a bit controversial because there are models out there where, you know, individuals, people are getting involved with high school athletes and, and getting involved with kids at a young level and what they really are trying to do is leverage uh, the ability to later on, when they become sports superstars, have their representation from an agency standpoint. And so this is something that, you know, it's been done several different ways. And, you know, there's always controversy as to, okay, <clears throat> you know, what is Nike doing with the opening? Well, they want to put Nikes on young kids and they want to have a a good impression of Nike and have a relationship with Nike. So when they go through college and they're able to get drafted and they're becoming a number one draft pick, it's like, okay, well, who's going to be your brand, right? This is something that we see a lot with AAU basketball. And so it's all about sort of investing or what those players are going to become once they become professional athletes. Now with NIL, you have professional athletes now. So that is, to some extent, changing the game a little bit. And is there a conflict of interest? That always gets brought up. Uh, I'll let somebody else debate that. But there are models out there that exist even um, from an AAU and club standpoint for basketball and football where you have uh, individuals that are uh, associated or, or have a vested interest in a sports agency working with high school kids and you know that that's going to be something that they will try to leverage when those kids are at a point in which they are, you know, making millions of dollars. Um, now, it's not necessarily like, you know, hey, you have to sign with us, you know, because you've done this. But it's just a relationship standpoint. And it's an access standpoint because you want to be able to have access, uh, just like a recruitment uh, with a college trying to get a football player. Uh, sports agencies want to have access to those players and to that circle so they can be uh, the ones that, uh, you know, end up uh, being able to uh, represent them. Um, Just like Jerry Maguire, right? Like the whole Jerry Maguire thing where Jerry Maguire 
thought he was going to be the, uh, the, 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 the agent for the number one quarterback in the NFL draft. And uh, Jay Moore, who played uh, the opposing agent, uh, was able to sneak in there and get there and, and actually run with them. And it was like, you know, it's all about access. It's all about knowing who you got to talk to. And, and Jay Moore, uh, who has some great impressions, by the way, if you've ever heard like Jay Moore has, has like a bunch of crazy impressions of people, does great Christopher Walken. But he, um, he played a really like sort of uh, notorious role there and knew that like you can have a relationship with the kid and the player. And, and Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise, had this great relationship with the quarterback himself, but he didn't have the relationship with the father that he thought he did. And that's where Jay Moore was able to find the champion, as we say in recruiting circles, and get into the year of the champion and work that relationship. At the end of the day, uh, that quarterback ended up being represented by Jay Moore. And, and again, it was all access. Gerard, are you ready to talk about Colorado? <laughs> Do we have to? I think briefly we have to. I think briefly we have to. Because what's going on up in Boulder is very fascinating. And if you don't know what's happening, I don't know where you've been because everybody is leaving Colorado. And obviously that a part of that is by design, but it has not happened on this scale. This is unprecedented as far as the portal and roster overhaul. Now what Lincoln Riley and USC did last season a lot of players left and there was a lot of roster churning and it was unprecedented at the time and ended up working out for USC. Now Colorado and Deion Sanders is doing something very similar, but on a much more intense scale. As of the time of this recording, this podcast, 51 players have transferred out of Colorado. A lot of them have left following their spring game. I believe something like 83 scholarship players at the start of last year were on the roster. And of those 83, only, well, that might have changed since I, I started talking, but 18 of those players, those scholarship players remain on the roster. Deion Sanders is having to fill upwards of close to 50 scholarships. Now, they do have a big class coming in, 29 uh, prospects. Uh, on the transfer circuit, I believe they have 20 plus. They have 19 in their high school class. So they have some room to fill with guys coming in. But again, just a mass, mass exodus that makes what USC did in 2022 look like pennies. And I don't know what's going to happen with this. I'm not saying I want them to fail or anything like that, but it just seems like it's going to be not good next season i you have so many players coming in and remember usc only brought in a handful of transfers in that second window for the summer and by that by that point a lot of their players had already you know learned the new system and learned the new defense and they were still learning at that point but it wasn't like having to integrate 60 new players for a season in two months and they have a lot of catching up to do and to have that many players and the culture and locker room it just seems like a, a lot to do in the summer and the fall and fall camp and have all these new faces come together it just seems like a lot and i feel like 
it's moving towards implosion. But that's just me looking from the outside. I don't know what your thoughts are, but it's uh, it's wild what's going up there in uh, Boulder in terms of the portal. The portal is portaling. I think first and foremost, it was great to see the fanfare at the Colorado spring game. Yes. Uh, to see that, you know, Colorado fans were excited and there was uh, that kind of passion within the fan base still for this. So, I mean, that's good to see. Cause I, when I first, first, first started watching college football, Colorado was, was at the top. You know, I remember Colorado playing Notre Dame and, you know, seeing uh, Cordell Stewart and uh, Rocky Ishmael go head to head in that game. Uh, guys like Eric, the enemy, Colorado was was a was a juggernaut, uh, and at that point, you know, being in the Big Twelve and their big rival was Nebraska, shows you how everything has changed so so fast uh, in uh, you know that many years. But at the same time, I was also surprised at how bad Colorado looked, and of course, it's a were team- you though? Were you though? Yeah, I was, actually. I was. I was kind of surprised at how small they were. They looked more like Los Alamitos than they looked Damn. like a college football team Damn. that's going to compete for a Pac-12 anything next year. Like, you know, divisional championship, whatever. You know, I know we don't have divisions in the Pac-12 anymore, but let's just pretend um, they did not look anything personnel-wise like Washington, who I watched their spring game. Um, Oregon, uh, even UCLA, certainly not Utah. They were exceptionally small, but also even some of the players that they've touted and they've talked about guys like Travis Hunter, who are very talented players. I just didn't think that they played particularly well. I, I felt like the, the scrimmage, which wasn't really totally a scrimmage, it was kind of a glorified practice more than anything. I didn't see a ton of tel- player development from the guys that had already had transferred in, right? That was also something that kind of surprised me. I thought, okay, yeah, there's going to be some big gaping holes in some of these positions, and uh, certainly that's going to affect things. But I didn't expect that, you know, even some of the guys that had transferred in just kind of looked like they were out there, and there wasn't a lot of cohesiveness. Now, maybe it's just because they don't have enough depth and that's affecting everything but you're being very cavalier with the amount of players that you're sort of pushing out of the program at this point and you do have to get all those guys so you know first and foremost you want to make sure that you have at least 80 guys on the scholarship roster that you can go out there and play with come fall now you know is is there any question that that's going to happen obviously not in Deion Sanders mind but you're sort of putting it out there like, you know, there's sort of a cutthroat mentality to it that I, I don't know if it bodes well, like you said, culture-wise um, down the line. It's just sort of, you know, the guys we have here suck, so we need better players. But some of the guys that, you know, had been good for them have left as well, guys that I don't think they wanted to have leave. And so, again, that doesn't necessarily send the best message that inside the locker room, the culture is all that great. But I will say, I was actually surprised, uh, A, it was snowing, uh, but B, <laughs> at um, how, how disjointed 
they looked in, you know, the quarterback position and the wide receiver position and even some of the positions that they've had some guys come in didn't necessarily look like they were at the level to be able to compete with USC. Let's just say this. The gap between Georgia and USC is, was significantly smaller at the end of last year. Okay, We're talking national championship game Georgia versus USC losing to Tulane versus USC and Colorado right now. Colorado has a long, long ways to go. They you know, have a game or two there that maybe they can win. But they got to get a lot better. I mean, who are they beating? Right, They're not beating anybody in the Pac-12 right now. They're not beating anybody in the Pac-12 right now. Can they get there in the second window? Are there enough good players? Is there enough depth? Is there enough time? Because like I said, you got to have some player development as well. You can't just have a bunch of mercenary right. guys come on the roster and, and guys are not cohesiveness and there's not they don't fit the program, they don't fit the scheme, whatever it is. Uh, so, yeah, there's a long ways they've got to go before I look at them and think that, okay, yeah, that's a team that can beat Arizona. That's a team that can beat Arizona State. Um, who was the worst Pac-12 team last year? Who was at the bottom, bottom? Colorado. Well, other than Colorado, obviously. Uh, Arizona State was Arizona, probably – Arizona State. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, man, I, I did not see – them competing against any of those teams uh, during spring ball. Maybe that's just what Deion Sanders saw. He's like, wow, I finally got to kind of see this team together, scrimmage. Um, you know, I would assume that they had some scrimmages before, but I don't know, maybe just under the lights. Maybe some of his old former players called him up and said, dude, you guys got to get better quick. And he just said, hey, man, I need to press the panic button. I don't know. But I was a little surprised um, at the uh, – the, the, the lack of talent was, again, that's expected, but not a lot of cohesiveness and, and not a lot of – I wasn't really just impressed with some of the guys like, like they had on there that, you know, everybody's excited about either. Yeah, I mean, there's other, like, weird stuff. I just saw, like, some of the athletic interviews about calling up some of those four players that left that, you know, like Deion Sanders wouldn't really – talk to them he was more like a motivational speaker but it wasn't like they had a coach player relationship he didn't basically didn't really talk to them which just i just found bizarre and i mean we've seen the like social media clips of deon sanders you know doing his thing we talk, walks in a room you know i'm bringing my louis bags all those kind of sound bites or whatever but i thought maybe there'd be a little bit more of that when the cameras were off but it just sounds like it's more of that even when the cameras aren't on and he doesn't really seem to have a connection with his team throughout after, despite being there for several months and going through an entire spring camp. So I don't know, all the red flags are there for me as this is going to be an unmitigated disaster. Not that I'm rooting for that, but I just think it's not headed in the right place, but we'll see what happens as they go through their portal journey moving I, forward. I would, inter- I would interject to, to, to that point that you know i do think he's taking the herm edwards approach to being more of a general C- manager ceo then yeah then he is okay that's like fair a coach that's there you know in the defensive coordinator meetings with with uh, or the offensive coordinator meetings and like getting into what the scheme is and obviously you know when you've got a guy like lincoln riley or nick saban those guys are former coordinators and so when it comes to x's and o's 
they get involved. And that's always the value in hiring a coach like that. That was a former coordinator because you know you're not just getting a personality. You're not just getting a uh, narcissistic uh, leader that everybody sort of believes in. Um, you're getting a system and you believe in the system. And that's something that can perpetuate itself because obviously you can have coaches come up through that system uh, rather than just the personality and uh, that sort of um, iconic individual, if you will. Uh, and everybody sort of buys into the one person. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's sort of been his approach. And, um, you know, he has that to sell, certainly. But then you, you kind of wonder, okay, so how hands-on is he with the coaching aspect of things and the accountability of what's going on with the coaching aspect? Obviously, there's going to be accountability as, okay, you know, we got a bunch of guys dropping footballs. Uh, we've got guys that, um, you know, are supposed to be like five-star transfers who are just like getting lost in coverage. So somebody's going to get fired over that, but that's too late. <laughs> you know, those things have happened already. Like, you know, you, you want to be involved. So you kind of know the guys to hire and you know that, you know, these are the guys that are going to get it done uh, and not necessarily be so hands-off. You know, to some extent, Clay Helton was kind of hands-off with that as well, because, you know, Clay Helton had never called plays in his own offense. Clay Helton had never been a guy that designed his own offense. He brought in people to do that. And uh, when he was at USC as a coordinator, the guys above him that were head coaches really ran the offense completely, whether it be from an XSO standpoint, in terms of play design, all the way to play calling. And so he was never accountable or responsible for those things. So when he becomes head coach, he has to hire people to do that, who know that, who understand that. And thus, you know, you're just sort of supervising, but you've never actually done it. So, yeah, that that can be an issue. And obviously it didn't work with Herm Edwards. You know, that whole sort of approach is to, you know, I'm not going to uh, be involved in the offense or defense. I'm just going to sort of oversee everything. And um, it didn't really work so well for him. So, yeah, that was, um, you know, I saw a Colorado spring game. I saw Oklahoma spring game as well which I know this is going to like Trojan fans are going to love to hear this and I'm not saying it uh, because of it, but I have to say I was absolutely completely unimpressed with Oklahoma's offense, despite there being so much written about how great it was and statistics thrown out there. And, oh my gosh. And, and I heard, you know, there was a lot of people that are actually questioning the defense because it was such a high scoring game, but that's a product of the, the format I thought the defense was okay. I thought the back seven ran to the ball well. Uh, they tackled pretty well in some situations. I think it was like a great defense, but I thought it was okay. But the offense is actually what I saw. I thought the quarterbacks didn't play very well despite the statistics. They held on to the ball too long. Uh, they threw some passes that were just like they had guys open and they just overthrew them. I came away watching Oklahoma's spring game going, this ain't a better team from last year. Like all this stuff about, oh, my gosh, we – we got to rebuild because of Lincoln Riley. Uh, or then, you know, when that doesn't work, it's, oh, well, you know, um, Brett Venables has is, is, is been here before. And, um, you know, there's all this talent here. And, and Lincoln Riley didn't do enough with it. And so it's like the opposite of having to rebuild, right? It's just, you know, there was no player development there. They have the talent, but there's no player development. I, I don't know. You can't go anywhere after this season if you only win seven, eight games. Like, you just can't. Like, there's not. 
there, this just talk of like a rebuild doesn't really work anymore. And, um, you know, when you've got guys that have transferred in and everything, I mean, they've had the same opportunities USC's had to fill its roster with good transfers. And they had a really good recruiting class. But man, I, I just didn't see it. Like offensively, that was the thing that stood out to me because that was the thing that a lot of people were were pounding their chest about if they were Sooner fans. And um, I also thought it was kind of weird and petty for them to have like this Kyle Murray Heisman ceremony thing. It was almost like insecurities over Caleb Williams winning the Heisman Trophy. And it's like, well, we got a, we got Heisman Trophy winners too. And so they brought out some guy who won the Heisman Trophy, I don't know how many years ago, Damn. to have a statue. Damn. Uh, it, it didn't seem like it was kind of like more about Caleb Williams winning the Heisman Trophy at USC than it was Kyler Murray. It just looks like, dude, you could have done that the year after he won the Heisman Trophy. What, why do it this year? It seemed a little suspect. Um, but also watched Washington's spring game, and I thought Washington looked good. I, I thought Penix actually looked a little off in that game. Um, I've seen him look better for sure, but it looked like a physical team, well-rounded. It's going to be a tough game up there in Washington, man. That's a hard place to play, and um, they're just like a solid team overall. You know, they're, they're a team we kind of thought they were in the beginning of the year last year, and I praised them, and then all of a sudden, for some reason, they just started dropping games. It's like, what the hell happened to Washington? But they finished the season sort of like they started it. So, um, you know, not a team with, like, wow talent all over the place. I mean, SC's definitely – like, when it comes to talent, they're they're getting right back to that 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 place in the Pac-12 where they're just heads above everybody. You know, Oregon is still there. Oregon's still got talent. We're going to see them this weekend in their spring game. And, um, you know, they've still got some dudes at Oregon. Uh, Washington definitely doesn't have the horses but they do look like they just a fundamentally very good team. And they've got a couple guys here and there that can definitely make some plays. And that's just going to be a tough team to play at home. Gerard, we have reached the point of our show where it's time to transition into the part where the listeners run the show. That is, of course, listener questions. Just a reminder, if you have a question you want us to read on this podcast, you can email us at podcast at uscfootball.com. Just make sure you put the composite Two stars, Gerard and Chris, Hurricane, 10K, Slantra Boys, Menudo Man, whatever you want, just so we'll go to my inbox. They'll know it goes for this show. So we have a hefty amount of questions, and that was after we moved up four questions to Brian Jackson. But I'm going to read them all because we're going on a break soon, so I just want to fill as much content as we can. Gerard, are you ready? Yeah, you're giving Eddie R. anxiety with all this talk of breaks. He's going to get on the hairstyle again and make a false crystal ball about us going on vacation actually you just reminded me that we have a voicemail question i'm gonna assume it's from eddie because you brought him up so i think we should just start with the voicemail and get that one out of the way so let's throw it to the voicemail question for uh gerald hey gerald um chris is there you can you can listen to this too i will uh you you talked about how you know, the approach for USC has to be to go after high school kids and kind of use the portal or the porthole to uh, supplement some of their uh, what they're lacking. How, how do you feel USC has done this this uh, this recruiting cycle? It seems that you know, unlike the others, kind of a flip where it's um, uh, heavy on the high school side, bringing in some some more portal people. And also, second part of this question: How do you think USC's NIL approach with um, you know, providing heavy sums of money for portal prospects 
of high school prospects. Do you feel that's a more sustainable um, approach or, you know, you know, or is Oregon's approach of handing, you know, 50K to every two-star player they can, you know, scrounge up? Is that a better approach? So uh, let me know. Eddie from Orange. Uh, love the show, guys. Love the show. Eight stars. Eight stars. Eight stars, baby. Eight stars. Draw, what do you think? Well, first, I don't want to be misquoted here. I'm not saying USC has to go heavy on high school as opposed to transfer. That has been the paradigm for most of the schools that are in that college football playoff conversation. You know, when we're talking about Georgia, Alabama, Clemson, uh, Ohio State. Um, Michigan maybe a little less so, but even really kind of Michigan, they've kind of sprinkled in uh, these players from the transfer portal and haven't gone for these big turnarounds at at certain positions. Now, obviously, with those schools, they've done better recruiting at the high school level, and so they have more talent, so they probably have less guys they want to uh, shuffle through. Uh, although the exception to that would be Alabama this past year, who has had double digits uh, of, of transfers out, and they still have not been real heavy going after transfers. They've really gone more after high school football players and they had a class of 28 sign in December. So I think culturally, most coaching staffs right now feel like it's better to have a culture when you bring in high school football players and you have them come through and sort of earn their earn their way from being young freshmen into becoming juniors and seniors as opposed to bringing in guys from other places uh, now USC may be changing that paradigm USC if they can get to a college football playoff here in the next couple of years and if they let alone win a national championship things are going to change real quick I think you're going to see where people are going to say you know what if you have positions that you're just not comfortable with, then you got to, you know, shake those guys loose and go get more players. Again, I think it's easier for USC to do because a lot of these players are not Lincoln Riley's guys. You know, they're not uh, players that uh, were recruited by the coaching staff. So it's also easier from a personal standpoint to be able to process guys out of the program uh, that uh, you didn't necessarily have that relationship with a little harder when you recruit them out of high school and you make all these promises and then two years into it going, Hey, you know what? I was wrong. <laughs> you, you really can't play here. You're really not good enough sort of thing. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes in terms of, you know, it's obviously worked for USC. Um, I think they've done swimmingly from that standpoint. You know, Chris talked about at the top of the podcast, you know, having a new defensive line, got a new defensive line and guess what? It's a more athletic, Defensive line is a bigger defensive line. It's a better defensive line than you were going to start last year, okay, across the board, including having Tuli Tui-Pelotu in there. Um, so you look offensive line, you look defensive line. Those were the two biggest uh, areas on the football team that you had to improve from a talent, physicality standpoint, and you did that. And so, it, it, I mean, it's, it's an A+. Plus. It's an A+. Plus. You, you, you can't really ask for a whole lot more than what they've done. Um, now, obviously, you've got to, you know, have those tools and you've got to use them properly to make sure that you win football games. From an NIL standpoint, the strategy 
of going after the uh, proven commodity, if you will, um, has just sort of been traditionally what USC does. I don't know that it's a strategy that, you know, Lincoln Riley necessarily is, is, is backing. Although I do think, as I've said many times before, there's a temptation in the going into the portal as opposed to having to recruit kids out of high school because the projecting, um, the, you know, two, three years of having to grind on a guy only to see, you know, Oregon swoop in at the end of the day and make some kind of NIL pitch with Nike and boom, he goes there and it's like, okay, well, where do we go now? So, you know, with everything being so truncated with the transfer portal recruiting process and you get guys like Barry Alexander that, you know, one weekend, hey, I'm going to transfer. And the next weekend he's on campus and then he's committed. I mean, that's just infinitely easier and simpler for a coaching staff to have to deal with. You know, didn't have to make a bunch of visits to his high school. Uh, they didn't have to have a bunch of different unofficial visits. Uh, they didn't have to get to know his coaching staff and, you know, all these different people that are players in his recruitment, uh, god uncles and trainers, et cetera. Um, it all sort of came together rather quickly. And so that is very tempting for a coaching staff. It's like, hey, you know what? We need quality players. And it's a two-week recruiting process as opposed to a three-year recruiting process. You're going to go for the, the, the former rather than the latter. So that is um, something that, you know, from a strategy standpoint, it, it stands out. From an investment standpoint, again, I think it's sort of just USC's tradition in, in terms of, you know, going after the thing that, has proven itself at USC to be successful, like Pete Carroll. You know, you know, Pete Carroll wasn't a guy that was going to get a bunch of money up front as a coach. They didn't uh, lure him uh, away from the NFL, and they didn't have to. He was unemployed at that point, but he went on to become the most highly played uh, high, uh, high, uh, head coach in college football, and that's because he proved himself at USC. So the money is there at USC. It's just they don't usually put it out there um, hoping. You know, like would that money for Lincoln Riley had been there for Dave Aranda? No, I don't think so. And, and we could feel like, hey, you know, Dave Aranda, man, that, that's going to be a great fit at USC. And and Lincoln Riley's not available. Uh, there's other guys that are not available. And, and it becomes that sort of coaching search where you're looking at guys that maybe don't have a lot of years under the belt. Maybe they had just one good year. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where you're going to have to sort of cross your fingers a bit. I, I don't think USC's throwing a bunch of money out there. Now, obviously, they don't have to throw the same kind of money out there. But I mean, in terms of relative to what you're going to be you know, competing in, in, in other schools and what the money they're going to put out there for a guy like Dave Aranda, I just don't think USC is going to be at the top. I think USC in that scenario is like, we're going to go after somebody else that's cheaper. And we'll see if they work out. And that's unfortunately how you end up with young coaches like Lane Kiffin or Steve Sarkeesian, right? They're guys that were kind of proven commodities at coordinator for USC at USC. So they had a relationship there. Um, but despite, you know, looking at Chris Peterson and everything that he had done, which he did it at Boise State. And I think for some USC money people, uh, beyond just the, the incompetence that was going on at administrative level, um, just in terms of the money that was there, I'm sure there were questions like, ah, you know, that's not a sure bet there, right? That's not a guy that's gotten the college football playoff. Uh, and that's not a guy that's at a, at a power five school that's recruited, that's, you know, done the things that Lincoln Riley has done. 
So you put him against the guy like Steve Sarkeesian, who's also completely unproven, uh, you know, took Washington from no wins to like seven wins. Okay, that's great. But seven wins to 12 wins is a different story. Uh, so it's like we're going with the younger guy. It's cheaper, and, you know, he's been here before, and, uh, you know, we, we feel some, there's promise there with him. And I think that sort of translates to what we're seeing with the recruiting process. There's not a lot of talk about any of these collectives and their investment into trying to sway high school football players. Now, I know it has to be there to some extent upon enrollment because the Malachi Nelson situation was absolutely a situation, okay? I'm not here to call anybody liars, but I got enough good sources behind the scenes that talked about that little trip that he made to Texas A&M right before the season. And everything that came up was about USC's got to get its crap together with NIL, and they got to get it done quickly because it's not looking good. And that was coming from people from his side of the fence, not from internal people at USC. So certainly that had to get squared away, and it got squared away. The only question right now, or, or I think you know, maybe the trepidation in NIL with USC is, are there too many chefs in the kitchen? Because now you, you've gone from having Boulevard, which was a model that didn't work, and it was you know, somewhat controversial, and, and we talked about it, uh, last year a lot, you know, sort of, is this going to work? Is this too much of a middleman? You know, are they getting the funds right to the players? You know, this, this model, is this the right way to do it? Not to say it was the wrong way to do it, but to question whether that was the right way to do it. Ultimately, it turned out not to be the right way to do it. So now you have the reboot in House of Victory. You have the Tommy group that's out there. You have, uh, what's the other one, Chris? House of Victory. No, I already said that. House of Victory, Tommy Group. Victory and, Formation. Yes, Victory Formation. So you've got three, and then there's like another one that's kind of out there as well. So I don't know what the communication here is and how much communication USC can have with each of these entities and how much communication they have with prospective uh, student athletes. But that's a little bit of a concern, you know, not, not a huge concern, but it's like, okay, you got all these different entities moving now. Um, is there like a SOCOM of sorts that can uh, sort of, you know, c- control them all under one umbrella? Umbrella. I mean, that reference is probably a little out of left field for people. But like for U.S. military, you had at one time all these different special forces units, right? And they were all set up with command from their branch of the military. So you had uh, special forces or other known as the Green Berets. They were part of the army. Uh, you had PJs, uh, paramilitary uh, jumpers that are from uh, the Air Force. And, and you know, obviously you had Navy SEALs were part of the Navy. And you had all these different units, and they were all kind of doing their own thing. And, like, you know, we're like two ships passing in the night. And finally, you know, the government said, hey, you know, we need a special forces sort of communications hub, someone that can command all of these forces under one umbrella. So at least when we're in the theater of war, we kind of know where these units are and what everybody's doing. So we don't have any infanticide. We don't have any issues with friendly fire. And so, you know, that's where SOCOM came up and it was the Marines that were a little stubborn and called themselves special forces just as a entire military. Well, they're not really a military branch because they're part of the Navy, but anyways, uh, long story short, they ended up giving in and now MARSOC is part of SOCOM, but you have to have someone that sort of can, 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 can communicate and coordinate, right? So I don't know what's happening with that right now because these are different groups. They've got different philosophies and different models. 
So I, I don't know if it's just one of those things that's like competition and eventually things get sorted out and there's one that takes over or is it better to have multiple ones? I think it's better to have multiple only if you can coordinate these multiple entities and make sure that they're responsible for different things, right? Like, you know, it, it, whatever that may be, whether it's like upperclassmen, hey, you guys, can you focus on retention? You guys focus more on the guys that are the new guys. I don't know. You know, I, I, I really don't know. I think right now it's up to the determination of the players and sort of who they feel like they want to link with and what have you. So that's an interesting thing that's come up over the last few months with USC and NIL. They went from having a defunct model to, you know, now like a, a few different models working for them. I left the room like twice during that answer. Well done, Gerard. Well done. That was just our first question. So I'm really looking forward to this as we move forward. Question number two from Dustin, two-star pod question. With hindsight being 2020, do you think Jared Kingston playing guard might have, might have been at least somewhat in response to the staff realizing Ethan White wasn't actually going to come to USC? No, I do not. Now, I could be wrong, but I do not. I think if you look at Jared Kingston, you look at him and he looks more offensive guard than offensive tackle. He does not have an offensive tackle body. Michael Tarquin does have an offensive tackle body. But, I mean, I still would have liked to see Jerry Kingston play some left tackle. But, again, I think it more so has to do with the with the NFL in mind. Jerry Kingston projects as a guard. He looks like a guard, has a guard body. If you see him up close, you, you would be, like, immediately thinking he was a guard. I think it had more so to do with that, not necessarily with Ethan White uh, eventually not enrolling at USC. I agree. Gents, this comes from Rich. Excuse me, gents. I did have two questions, but with the additions from the porthole, I have one. You posted the four D-line stat lines. I believe that is referring to my tweet about uh, Anthony Lucas, uh, Keon Bars, Bear Alexander, and Jack Sullivan. Then add all the linebackers. If USC still has problems like last year on defense, then it's a scheme defensive coordinator issue and not a personnel issue, right? Thanks. Love the show. Two best two hours of the week. And he gave us a fight on emoji. Correct. I was going to say, correct. You have definitely changed the personnel personnel more than enough at this point. And you'll have some great freshmen coming in in the summer as well. So at this point, yes, I would have to say it's scheme coaching issue at that point. You do not have the limitations that you did last year. I mean, you still might have a little bit, but for the most part, you have certainly upgraded across the board. And at that point, it becomes more with the scheme. Absolutely. I have a question from Andrew, who actually sent in a really, 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 really long breakdown of a question. And then he responded to his own question and said, actually, you can nix this. It's too long. And I feel like we've already discussed this enough. New question. Gerard, yes or no, have you heard any specific prospects mentioned with USC who are not in the portal yet? And if yes, do you think there's still a decent chance that they enter? Okay, Gerard, so just a simple yes and no to the first question. Have you heard any other specific prospects mentioned with USC who are not in the portal yet? Yes or no? Man, why are you repeating the question? You're just drawing this out, making it longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. 
longer. Yes, decent chance. I don't know. What's decent? Uh, better than 50%. I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to know guys that are – you hear things and you hear names. And, you know, Bear Alexander wasn't a name that we had heard, uh, at least not, you know, early on um, during the spring as a guy that was looking to leave. But you do hear names pop up. And like I said last year uh, with Brian Reese and uh, Mason Smith, those were names that came up and it came up from good sources. You just kind of wait and see, is that actually going to happen? Is there actually going to be some movement here? So, you know, we've only got, uh, we only got four or five days here left uh, before these names can be entered into the portal. So we'll see here, but there's definitely been some other big names that have been floated out there. So it would not surprise me if there is uh, at least one more kind of big defensive front seven player. This one comes from Mike and I kind of feel like it, reflects what we just talked about. Hey, Chris, question for the Cilantro boys. Has there been any smoke about David Bailey enter the portal? I feel I'd feel way better about this defense if we added a stud tackler like him. And there's a part two as well. Gerard is the David Bailey whisperer, but I haven't heard anything about a potential re not re-entering a a renewed interest in possibly entering the portal like we talked about uh, several months ago. I have not heard anything as of late. And it was an interesting interview that Greg Biggins had with Elijah Brown, who is uh, going to take an official visit to USC. I forget that date. We might have missed that date. Is he a June 2nd guy or is he had not logged in an actual specific date for USC? I don't think there was a ex- specific date, but it sounds like he is going to take because he has five left. Uh, I did not see a specific date, although I could be wrong. If you stall for me, I can look it up. On the subject of that article, however, yeah, he talked a little bit about David Bailey and Stanford and David Bailey being a former modern day monarch, uh, talked about uh, how he likes Stanford still. So, you know, that implied that he was happy there. He's not looking to leave, but, you know, we know that these things can change in a heartbeat. (laughs) You know, these things uh, are not always what they seem so. Um, I, I think for USC, though, you know, edge players, I mean, they've got some guys. You know, you've got Jamil Muhammad. Uh, you've got Anthony Lucas playing there now. So that's something that you have to kind of put in the back of your head. You know, I think there was some hope originally that he would be a three technique and he would be that guy that was, you know, the 6'6", 290-pound three technique that uh, could be the uh, manual right that manual right never ended up being for USC. Uh, but he has it in his head. He wants to be more of a Russian defensive end type of player. He's about 270 and is talking about trying to get down to like 255, which, you know, I roll my eyes at. Um, I just hope to God that Barry Alexander doesn't turn into fall camp and all of a sudden he's down to 280. That's going to be the peristyle will burn down at that point because uh, that will be another indication of small ball taking over for USC. They need some 300-pound guys. You know, you're going to definitely need those guys when you go to the Big Ten. But uh, nevertheless, um, they're pretty good on the edge. You know, they've got some good edge guys. You know, Solomon Bird is still there. Corey Foreman is still there. Uh, You're hoping that, you know, he sticks around and is able to, um, you know, become the guy that uh, everybody saw at Corona Centennial. And, you know, you've got some decent talent there. It, It is still on the interior 
where you're you're trying to um, just just get more depth and, and more good players there. You know, if you can find that guy that is that true three technique, and then you bump bear over uh, to being uh, more of a one shade. You know, we'll, we'll see if that happens. But um, that's that's kind of my vibe on this situation. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, if you jumped in the portal, I'm sure USC would 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 be interested. Uh, but I don't know if that it's not quite the need that it was because now you're looking at Anthony Lucas potentially becoming that guy. Uh, without Elijah, with Elijah Brown, he is visiting Stanford on June 2nd, UCLA on May 5th. And then it looks like USC will be towards the end of June. So that's when he's targeting. He does not have a date uh, for that right now. So that well, is with that kind of so he's, he doesn't have anything for the 16th, 17th. No, that that might gosh, that that could be it. He could be coming yeah. for Golden Hour Part Two. Because last year USC they were going to have some visits on the last week of June, but they bumped those up because they ended up having their camp uh, that weekend, and they kind of didn't have a lot going on those weekends where they had camps and what have you. And so um, there is actually a weekend all the way up until July, like July first, that you can you can take visits this year. Uh, and then you have that weird scramble weekend, which they were going to have official visits last year, that last week of July. And that became like a thing. And that that was also, you know, with that Texas A&M pool party, there was actually guys that were it, it, Texas A&M kind of got screwed a little bit because they had some of their top guys scheduled to come in on that weekend. And then the NCAA at some point during the summer, like in the middle of June, said, no, that can't be a contact weekend for official visits. Like you can just have guys on unofficial visits. You can't have official visits that weekend. So that kind of changed things for some schools because obviously that's a, a sneaky little last minute right before the season. You know, if you could get an official visit weekend in, you might get some commits out of that. And so that had to become like an unofficial uh, weekend for them. And it wasn't quite as big as uh, it had been in the past. So um it's always interesting, you know, to kind of you have to stay on top of that, you know, as a personnel guy and, you know, you, you're, you're scheduling all these things. And, you know, I, I don't uh, envy uh, any Hanson and everybody that has to, they got to scramble and have these visits. And, you know, it just seems like it's a never ending process with kids coming in on official visits. That's, that's the thing with this, you know, these unlimited official visits. It's, it's again, more about the calendar. Like it becomes very unlimited if the calendar starts to open up even more. And you're bringing juniors in on official visits, then it just, I don't even know what, you know, like you, you, you just have to have like a whole nother staff that just takes care of that. It becomes more like the pros where you, you're going to have to pay a bunch of people and you know, you're going to have to have a new facility 100% sure. Cause they don't got room for that many people in the McKay center to have all these additional staff members to, to have like a scouting team and a, and a basically a front office is, is what you have to have. Uh, in addition to, you know, the coaches and the, and the guys that are on the field. I mean, you already have that to some extent, but it has to, you have to have some serious people there. Like it's not student workers and some young guys, young professionals and a guy trying to break into coaching. No, 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 no. You got to have real people there that can, that can bring results and uh, be able to compete against schools like Alabama. who are going to, you know, put a bunch of those guys just going to recruit all year long. You know, it's going to be, that's what they do. They're not really coaches. They're, they're salesmen. And they are there to recruit all day long. And then you've got to have the people that from a logistics standpoint are on top of all these things. They're the scholarship offers you have, the, the dates, 
you know, what you can do when, can we bring guys in on a barbecue weekend? Can they go in the pool? Oh, no, they can't be in the pool this weekend. The NCAA says, no, this is a no pool weekend. You know, all that kind of stuff. There's all kinds of loopholes. There's secondary violations that schools will just take to, to, to try to recruit a kid because, you know, it's not a big deal, right? But you got to know how many secondary violations can you have? Is it worth it? You know, there's, there's a plethora of things that come up with this. And the second part of Mike's question is, are we overhyping the additions of Keon Bars and Christian Roland Wallace? Didn't Arizona have the worst defense in the Pac-12? Love the show. Thanks for all you guys do. Fight on, Mike. I would say we are not overhyping the additions of Keon Bars and Christian Roland Wallace. Christian Wallace has tons of starting experience. Keon Bars was a second team all Pac-12 selection at one point. And I would just like, as a counterpoint, to point out that Makai Blackman came from a very bad Colorado defense and ended up being USC's number one cornerback last season. And Christian Gonzalez also came from Colorado, and he's about to be a first-round pick tomorrow, possibly even a top-ten pick for the NFL draft. So there's just because you played on a bad defense does not mean – you are an under-talented prospect. It's all about development and putting them in the right position. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think with, you know, bars, we're pretty like, oh, okay, it's a, it's a, a, a big guy. You know, they, they, a big guy who can kind of move, and that's what they need. He didn't show well on film last year. Last season, his film wasn't all that great. It was the year before, and I don't know what the drop-off was. Uh, maybe they just had him doing different things or what have you, but he didn't look quite uh, as impactful to me. You know, when we talked about that on signing day or during the early, uh, the first transfer window, and we were, I think, had that show, live show on signing day, and uh, people wanted us to kind of rate or rank the uh, transfer that they had at that point, and bars like wasn't on my list, and some people gave me uh, some, some, some criticism for that, but I would say that, you know, watching him during spring football, I thought he played well. I thought he was, he was good. Again, a little bit more pass rush than an anchor. And, you know, that's something that you know, the USC has got to be cognizant of and, you know, making sure that uh, guys aren't getting too far upfield and um, taking themselves out of their run fits. But nevertheless, a guy that, you know, he had some good pressures and, and moved around well. Um, he's dropped some weight. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's maybe feeling a little more agile, a little better, uh, from that standpoint, but, um, you know, Christian Roland Wallace, we haven't seen him yet uh, at USC. So we don't have that sort of in a Trojan uniform evaluation that we can make. Uh, but he was very productive for, for Arizona last year and was a guy coming out of high school that was on the upswing. You know, he had some scholarship offers and some schools pushing for him late and he decided he was going to stick with Arizona. Uh, but uh, was probably one of the better players uh, for them. Now, again, the the injury and not being able to play during the spring is a little bit of a red flag. You don't like to see that. Is it a Bobby Haskins situation where, you know, he'll get back on it, but he may miss some games here and there because he has that re-aggravating issue. Uh, you don't want to see that. You hope not. But USC is continuing to recruit at that defensive back position um, looking for additional players you know they're looking for additional big defensive ends and they're looking for additional big corners so you know that we've seen that just from the guys that they bring in on on, on official visits so obviously they're not feeling uh super confident you know like they like those oh we're good at those positions. we're done you know we, we don't need another guy 
Um, and, and, and there's always that sort of, if there's that one guy that jumps into the portal and it's like, holy crap, doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, how stacked the position. If Marvin Harrison Jr. was to jump into the portal and you're like, well, we've already got Dorian Singer. Nah, nobody's saying that at USC. If, uh, you know, Marvin Harrison Jr. wants to transfer to USC. Uh, so there's those type of guys, those type of players that always potentially you could go after. Um, but nevertheless, it looks like USC's, um, you know, even taking some waivers and going after some guys uh, like, you know, Frickwan Fegans, who's, you know, okay, you know, hasn't really done anything at, at Alabama, hasn't been at Alabama a long time. But um, a guy that you're recruiting a little more off a of high school film than you are, uh, you know, Christian Gonzalez or, or even Makai Blackman, because they had a lot of film um, at, uh, at their previous schools at Colorado. And obviously, with Christian Roland Wallace had a lot of film at Arizona. One of our last questions, Jeremy from San Clemente says, of the blue chip linemen coming out of California in the 2024 class, which players will USC have a realistic chance recruiting? Which ones would be most likely to be impact players in our debut season in the Big Ten? I'm not sure if he means offensive linemen or defensive linemen, or maybe he's referring to just both. I would say, to reiterate, because we get a similar question like this every time, DeAndre Carter, Brandon Baker, uh, I'm blanking on the kid from uh, up north, Gerard, you're going to have to hear it. Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah Jackson? Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're talking about Jericho. Uh, Jericho, Jericho Johnson. Johnson, there it is. Jericho Johnson, I would say USC has a realistic chance of all those. If we're including defensive linemen with this, Again, super hard to be an impact player in the trenches, especially when you're going to the Big Ten Conference. I would say of those, probably Brandon Baker has the best chance. But again, I don't think you would want to throw a freshman as a tackle prospect out there in the Big Ten. So I'm not confident saying any of those guys really could be an impact player in their debut season. But Brandon Baker has the has the best chance as the number one caliber kind of offensive tackle in that class. Yeah. Defensive line wise, uh, you know, certainly there's less traction nationally. You know, you don't get the feeling like there's any one guy that's standing out that USC has this great shot at, which is similar to last year, you know, going into the summer, we we're kind of looking at the visitor list and it was really Edric Hill who ended up at Alabama that was the only guy that was like a, a bona fide defensive tackle. You had Mateo Oyungalele, who we thought, okay, could end up being a free technique, you know, big body guy. He's actually flipped over and started playing some tight end for Oregon uh, during the spring. Supposedly it's just a, a sort of temporary thing because they're lacking depth at tight end. But I don't wonder if he was really blowing it up at defensive end for them that they would want to move him at all. So that's interesting, you know, something to know. But USC just didn't have a lot of really good options on defensive line uh, when it came to the summer and you got a bulk of those official visits. And that's kind of sort of how it looks right now uh, to some extent. You know, they did have Justin Scott come in on an unofficial visit last season. He has not been on campus since. Looked like he was going to make a commitment earlier in the year. And now he sort of backed off of it. Some STC schools have gotten involved with him. Uh, USC needs to get him back on campus to have any kind of shot at him. Um, Aiden Breland has uh, spoken. You know, he uh, talked a little bit with Greg Biggins uh, a couple of weeks ago about some of the schools he's looking at. 
and uh, spoke pretty highly of USC and sounded like USC had a decent shot at him. I don't think he's a guy that is going to play right away at USC. Um, not unless, you know, they have a bunch of guys that they're, they're getting his transfer leave early. Uh, but he is a guy that, that could be an impact player in terms of rotation. You know, I think he and Jericho Johnson's Chris mentioned, 6'4", 300 pounds from Fairfield, California. Uh, he's, um, you know, a, a top 20 defensive tackle. Uh, those are guys that, 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 can, that can make a splash in the rotation, and you do have to have depth. You know, um, they, uh, they have some guys coming in that are going to be interesting to see in the 2023 class and see where they end up. You know, Sam Green, we were projecting as being kind of an undersized defensive tackle that would have to put on weight, and now he's playing rush end. You know, so you never know how these guys uh, end up developing physically. Dejan Lafitte, um, the um, 6'4", he was about 285 when I saw him last um, out of Ontario Colony High School, uh, a three-star that committed to USC last season. He's up to 305 now. According to his trainer, uh, put up some some little clips of him uh, working out uh, during the offseason and, and, you know, looking quick and, and looking like a guy. Like, he could, you know, maybe he, he can get some run there for USC. It depends on Sean Nua and his trust in that. You know, he went with uh, Tyrone Telene. He went with Stanley Tafu, who were, you know, not the most physically gifted players. Uh, I think on the roster, but played them quite a bit because he trusted them for for whatever reason. And so, you know, some of that rotation has to do with trust uh, with the coaching staff as well. These young guys are going to go in there and um, they're going to be able to to make a splash and and be able to get you know maybe steal some reps from Bear Alexander or Keon ba- uh, Keon Bars. We have our final questions, which is a multiple part question, comes from Alex. Chris and Gerard, apparently Twitter's made it impossible for me to send questions. Let's start with the first part. With the coaches heading out on the road to evaluate and recruit, I have two questions. Who would you rank this staff in terms of, A, the best recruiter, guy who can reel in anyone, B, the best talent evaluator, guy who finds the diamonds in the rough, and C, how USC will stack up against the Big Ten? I'm assuming Lincoln Riley is not uh, part of this, Gerard. So let's just go with that metric that uh, Lincoln Riley is not included for these uh, recruiter evaluations of A, B, and C. Let's go with the best recruiter first. Like gun to my head, I feel like it's Dennis Simmons. That's sort of my initial gut pick. Yeah, it would have been Dante Williams, you know, mm-hmm. a year or two ago for sure. Yeah, but for sure, for sure. He, he's obviously had some misses here um, recently at, at the cornerback position. And um, for whatever reason, just locally, not necessarily being involved in quite as many recruitments. I don't know if there's a he can reel in anyone. I, I don't think there's that guy really on the roster for USC. Uh, we're not seeing that, at least, you know. I mean, obviously, Kyle McDonald has been very successful in getting the running backs that he likes, but it's not like he's going out there and he's, and he's grabbing in anyone, right? I'm, I'm sure there's some other dudes that they would like to be involved with um, that have ended up committing to other schools. So he's, he's finding the guys that he likes, but he's finding the guys that like USC as well, and it's a, it's a good combination there. It's not necessarily sort of like, you know, Dante Williams uh, in his prime at USC, Oregon, or T. Martin, where it's just like, yeah, the best player at that position, they're going to get that guy, and then they're going to be involved in a couple other recruitments, maybe even outside of their position, and be able to get those guys as well. So we're not really seeing that from anyone, coach, in my opinion, on the staff. 
You think it would have been Jamar Kane? Jamar Kane, pretty good recruiter. Um, possibly, you know, maybe would have would have been a bit of a mover and shaker with some top guys, but it's hard to project that. I mean, yeah. I don't know everybody that he's brought in uh, at uh, LSU, and, and certainly USC has done a very good job on the defensive line with um, Sean you know, Nua. With, with, with uh, Sean Nua and just the combination of Roy Manning. I think Roy Manning is definitely a guy that's a, a good recruiter. He gets mentioned quite a bit by the edge rushers. You know, it's, it's a name that comes up uh, with guys. And so, I mean, he's, he's, he's definitely out there uh, moving and shaking and doing some things that uh, at least, you know, comes up in conversation quite a bit. And the second part of that, the best talent evaluator, well, my pick is Kyle McDonald, and we've already talked about why at the top of the show or early in the show. Kyle McDonald at this point, just because we saw how his two running backs, you know, were were rated uh, not low, but they were sort of middling and rose through the year. And and, and we watched them early on just on film and thought, wow, these, these are both really good running backs. Like I can say for us – and just our evaluations, we kind of were like stamp of approval. Like, I don't know. These, like, why is Marion Peterson not ranked higher? I mean, he should have probably <laughs> been ranked higher. Because he doesn't exist. That doesn't really exist. But, you know, we saw those guys and it was like, this, that's, these are some good gets. Like, USC is going out and they're finding some guys that are good players. And you just see that. And with Braylon Shelby, I mean, that there you go. Roy Manning. Uh, Braylon Shelby was a guy that um, had, uh, you know, not – the, the, the greatest ranking. I think he started out as a three star and then, you know, rose up over the year and we saw him on film. It was like, Holy crap. This guy's, this guy's a dude. Like if and I said this before, but I say it again, if I'd seen him in person and I could just kind of verify some things about him, like uh, he might've been like a five-star pound the table guy. Might've been like a Drake Jackson, Drake London sort of that guy, Fred Warner. Some of these guys that, you know, I've seen over the years and it's like, dude, we are missing the boat on this dude. I see him play in person, and so I, you know, I, I'm I'm less uh, I have less to go off of to just say okay, he's verified this way, this way, and this way. Watching his film, he's like a dude. But from, certainly from just that standpoint, like he's a very very good player. And um, you know, a I, I, I diamond in the rough, not so much. Marion Peterson is more probably a diamond in the rough. We're going to see what happens with the offensive line because there's a position where you have some potential for diamonds in the rough for sure. I was um, going to say Josh Henson deserves yeah. to be in this category I mean, as well. I, I don't know about you, Chris, but I loved what I saw from Elijah Page in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he, he, he looked very good, he looked very solid, and uh, looked like a player that is going to be a, a problem for people to try to – overcome him at the, the left tackle spot. I mean, he just he looked like he was very comfortable there and, and played particularly well. Um, and, you know, you've got guys like Alani Noah and uh, Amos Talalele who are sort of more raw prospects, and that's where you're going to have to see more player development for them to be super successful at USC. But if you do, then, you know, you went out and you saw guys that were not rated very high, and they were – the type of players that when Ryan Abraham sits down in February and asks Sean Nua, where are you going to go to get big bodies? And he says, we'll find them. And he did. And, that, and, and you know, you take Josh Hansen, but that was Sean Nua as well. Like he was very much involved with both those players uh, and their recruitment, that poly connection. 
And, uh, you know, they went out there to that Sacramento camp and I know they saw Lon Noah and that's where they really started to like him. And so, yeah, that, that could be, we, we have to see those guys in camp we have to see those guys this season. to really know whether they end up being uh, those sort of diamonds in the rough. And the final one, how will USC stack up against the big 10? I think they will handle their own. A lot of schools though, do have, a kind of a big time recruiter guy, like a guy who can get anyone, as we talked about with point A, USC maybe doesn't have that type of of guy. And a lot of schools have some, at least in the Big Ten, a lot of guys have guys like that. I mean, Ohio State obviously is the uh, the the leader there. You know, they have Brian Hartline. They have Larry Johnson, who is just a beast at recruiting defensive linemen. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the Big Ten has, has dudes that can get dudes on, on their rosters. I would say maybe, like, USC staff would be, like, tier two in terms of being up there, maybe pushing them into the middle of that tier. But I know Penn State has some good recruiters. Ohio State has some really good recruiters. Obviously, those are the kind of cream of the crop up there in the Big Ten. So I think USC is in competition to be a top five recruiting staff in the Big Ten once they move over. Yeah, I'd say, you know, three is, is probably yeah. where you'd place them. I mean, uh, Michigan's going on a, a big Michigan run too, right yeah. now in recruiting and in April, and you kind of, you know, there's a little eye roll there. Um, but Ohio State has been uh, very solid, and USC obviously beat Packard Curtis out for them. Uh, but they beat USC out for some other guys. Jeremiah Smith is somebody that USC uh, recruited out of the 2025 class, number one wide receiver in the nation. Obviously, that's not necessarily done yet. Uh, but they also, you know, went head to head with Dylan Mariola. Dylan Mariola committed to Ohio State only to decommit from Ohio State, and now is more likely probably headed to Georgia. Not 100% sure, but that's kind of the way things look like they're going at this date. So yeah, there's been some 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 back and forth there. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, you could argue maybe even second, um, but because Michigan's doing well right now, it kind of feels yeah. like, yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it, head to head, how many guys are USC going to go against those schools for, you know, is it going to open up Ohio State more in Southern California? Is it going to allow Michigan to recruit Southern California more? Or is it going to allow USC to recruit the Midwest more, you know, and, and be able to maybe cherry pick and go in to Chicago, maybe go into Cleveland? Um, I tell you what flashed into my head, and we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the podcast. Oh, okay. I want to start this all over again and make oh, this a five-hour oh, podcast. Oh, no, it'd be a six-hour if we're going all the way just, back. Just to, just to double down on Eddie and his post about how we're going on break, Eddie. Uh, no, we love Eddie. But um, going all the way back to the beginning where it was like, who is Bear Alexander in the grand scheme of things for this coaching staff, right? Is, is he the Sean Cody of the Lincoln-Riley era? And I, and I say no. But he kind of gives me the vibe for some reason of being kind of the Fred Davis of the Pete Carroll era. So USC was already kind of rolling, but Fred Davis was still a really big recruit for USC. That was the first big Midwest recruit going head to head with Ohio State. Ohio State's locking down that whole area. Toledo is Ohio State land. 
Uh, there's a couple kids that get out of there that go to Michigan, but you know, that school and basically that area kids just go to Ohio state. And during that recruitment, Fred Davis's high school football coach actually would get on Bucknuts and he would give updates directly about the college coaches that were coming in to see Fred. Uh, he would just talk about various different things during his recruitment. And throughout, he was basically saying he's going to go to Ohio State. He's going to go to Ohio State. And there was like an update. And it was like late November. And it's like he's going to Ohio State. He's locked in. Don't worry. Wink, wink whatever Ohio State fans do to fight on Buckeye, whatever it was. And we get into January, and I can't remember when Fred took his official visit to USC. It was definitely during the season, and he was a lone official visitor during one of those game weekends. And USC didn't bring a lot of visitors in on game weekends, and I remember Fred Davis was driving with Pete Carroll down Figueroa in Pete's convertible Mercedes and I saw him drive by I was driving to the game and I saw him drive by I go shit that's Fred Davis and Pete Carroll that's before the football game the football game's like tonight and so um we fast forward all the way to January and Fred Davis is on a plane uh to USC and this guy doesn't even know it and all of a sudden the rumors start to break out and everything that you know USC was there Pete was there on an in-home and it was like Pete left like in the next day Fred Davis was on a flight to, to, to Southern California and it just happened so quick and it was like boom and boom, it, boom, boom. for whatever reason kind of sort of reminds me of Bear Alexander it was like he's 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 not only leaving Georgia but he's going to USC was all in one foul swoop right um Rusty Menzel of, of our of our Georgia site we kind of broke the news like yeah, he's leaving and, you know, sources at Georgia expect him to go to USC. So it was not just like we had that period of time where he's leaving Georgia and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, USC's got to try to get this guy. This is the miss missing puzzle. It was like, yeah, he's, no, don't worry. It's, he's, he's already on his way to USC. <laughs> and then, boom, the next weekend, uh, he unofficially visits USC. Uh, following the weekend where uh, his high school handler was uh, visiting USC and taking pictures with Gavin Morris. Um, another guy that you could throw in there as being, you know, one of the, the recruiters, you know, that, that, uh, you could sort of rate. Um, I mean, it just was like, boom, boom, boom. And it sort of reminded me of Fred Davis. It was a big out of state recruitment. Uh, it was a guy that, uh, you know, was, was just a big time player. And, you know, at that point they were looking at him more as a wide receiver, but then he ends up coming in and playing tight end. Uh, and he, you know, ended up being an NFL, I think he was a pro bowler for a bit for the Redskins. Um, and, uh, and a really good player for USC. And it was one of those guys that uh, was just one of those sort of benchmark recruits from out of state where USC won a battle against Ohio State in their backyard, which obviously a little different. I mean, it's a transfer for Barrett Alexander. It's not like he was going to go to Texas A&M and USC swooped in and, you know, ended up getting him or something. So, so it is different. But for whatever reason, just at the point in time of where we are in the Lincoln-Riley era, and sort of where the USC football program was, you know, they're both already having kind of turned it around and they're looking for those dynamic pieces, those, those, those players, you know, those important players at those important positions that sort of take the team to the next level. And that kind of sort of reminds me of, uh, of this situation with Barry Alexander comparing it to Fred Davis. Bitch better have my honey. Oh. <laughs> and the final part 
of Alex's question. And lastly, because I don't think most people don't know the ins and outs, can you explain how the support staff works? For example, what role does Gavin Morris play and how much impact does Annie Hansen have on the process? Gerard, please, please, we'll keep it short. We're at the very end of this. I don't need an extra 20 minutes on this. You know, at the beginning of the podcast, I, oh God. I remember you made some promises about not reining you in and letting you go like I quote unquote always do. And here that was are, that was three hours again, ago, Chris. That idiot had no idea what he was talking about. Rabbit fire Ryan Abraham here. That man say. had no indication of what the future looked like three hours from now. Well, yeah, I don't want to break down what the entire support staff does either. I, I don't know what everybody does on the support staff from day to day. Um, you know, but it's Gavin, in the name. There's support staff. Yeah. Gavin, uh, he was the director of player development. Now I think he's the director of player engagement. Basically, Gavin's super connected to like a bunch of people. You want to get around L.A., and you want to have events and things, it's good to know Gavin because Gavin knows a lot of famous people, a lot of sports stars, and, you know, he's been in those circles. I mean, he's also been in the lonely seven-on-seven grinding B2G day circles where he knows the offseason and he knows the players that were involved in some of those outfits, you know, and, and sort of how important that aspect of recruiting uh, can be. And so, you know, he relates well. Uh, he always uh, chats it up with uh, the, the parents. And, and he's just, he's a recruiter. He really is a recruiter, but he's also kind of sort of a bit of a handler. I mean, if you've seen him on Instagram with Caleb Williams, I think he runs a lot of interference for Caleb Williams uh, when Caleb is on uh, campus and, and might be at like a basketball game or a public event. Uh, so he's just kind of one of those guys in, in, in the mix for the support staff, you know, not an on-field guy, not, um, I mean, he is an on-field guy. I actually made a joke. I made a tweet about him uh, doing his part for USC. He had uh, 30 yards of penalties that he had accumulated by acting like he was getting pushed over on the sidelines by players that ran over to the sidelines. He did that twice and uh, did a nice little acting job. So he was, uh, you know, getting ready for the season so he could draw some PI penalties for uh, some sideline um you know, late hits or what have you. But, uh, you know, that's what Gavin does. Uh, so he's he's definitely a recruiter. Um, you know, the impact that Annie Hansen and her crew, because that's like sort of a logistics thing where that's all about organization. That's all about getting players on campus, getting their families on campus, making sure that they are getting to see the right people at the right time, uh, making sure that they have a, a good time on campus and um, there's some, I'm sure, relation there with family. You know, you want to paint a good face for USC football. And everybody that you're in front of, you're always recruiting. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're giving a lecture on, here's this statue at USC, here's this building at USC. I think you want to minimize that as much as possible, quite frankly. Um, I know that's something that uh, is probably debated a lot, you know, with college football programs in terms of you know, how much educationally do you want to give kids when they go on tours and what have you but i think when you get down to the nuts and bolts of recruiting it's like you know get them in front of the position coaches talk about player development talk about nfl draft picks talk about playing time and then um you know at some point sometime 
there's got to be an NIL presentation that goes involved with that. So, you know, it's really getting players to the, to the right place and getting them in front of the right people and making sure all of this happens seamlessly. And then and it's, it's a logistics thing. And that is a very important part of the process as well. It's important when you're bringing kids on campus. It's also important from a personnel standpoint to make sure like your coaches are getting to the right places at the right time as well, which be I, I efficient. Be efficient. Being efficient, and that's that's not probably really where Annie falls in. I don't I don't think she's necessarily having to schedule visits. So maybe she does. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Lincoln Riley doesn't let us like interview the support staff. Like we could do that somewhat with with Clay Helton, and and so some of those folks we had on like our live show and what have you. And, and obviously we've had Gavin on in the past. I mean Gavin used to post on the Peristyle, so I mean you know <laughs> he's no he's no uh, no stranger to the old timers and the Peristyle. Um, but yeah, we haven't really been able to like talk to Annie to the point where we can, uh, you know, understand like what are the breadth of her actual uh, responsibilities. But but it's clear, you know, in terms of logistics from the side of bringing kids in for visits and organizing events and, and managing those events, um, whether it be barbecues, pool parties, unofficial visits, or all the golden hour stuff that you saw during official visits. You know, a lot of that is Annie, you know, going and, and doing the legwork and her team doing the legwork, making sure that, you know, budget's on point, that, uh, you know, that, that the coaches are up to date on what they're doing, where they're going, when. Um, but like I said, there's a whole other aspect of that. So when the coaches got to go on the road and then they've got to do May evaluations and they've got to do January evaluations and, they, you know, that aspect of things as well. There's a lot that goes into support staff and the support staff, like I said, it's just going to have to get bigger and bigger as the recruiting process gets bigger and bigger. Now you have all these transfers that you have to evaluate. You've got to have a staff on that full time. You've got to know who these guys are before they enter the porthole. You have to know the potential players that might be in the porthole. So you have an evaluation immediately and, and somebody can stand on the table and say, coach, this is a guy we need or coach. You know, this is, this is a guy you need to look at. This is a serious guy. This is a guy that, you know, Production wise, eh, but watch his film. I mean, that, that's that's to find the Tyrone Telene, that's what you have to do. You have to have some background. Sean Nua had to sort of know him coming out of American Samoa and knowing, you know, he didn't have a lot of production at Kansas State, but probably knew him from Mount Sac. So, you know, that's that's how you end up with that type of player. Because otherwise, you probably don't have a lot of background on him. So yeah, support staff has got a lot of work. They're doing a lot. And it's potentially in the future going to become more of a thing where they get more involved with recruiting, sort of like scouts for the NFL are more involved with the evaluation process up to the draft. And then the full-time coaches are just really coaching. From a personal standpoint, they have their wants and needs. They definitely have an opinion when it comes to the board. But they're not out there on the road, you know, watching these guys play uh, in practices and, and what have you. They're, they're back – at the facility coaching their guys up. That's what they're paid to do. And that's where their focus is. And as final note, Alex, thanks for the podcast. I hope you guys have a good break. The invite for both of you is always open. If you want to vacation in Switzerland, Gerard, what do you think? Switzerland? Would you like, would you like to go to the Swiss? Yeah, we we're international, baby. You didn't know this. Alex is living in Switzerland. Wow. That's a man. What a, what a amazing place to live. Like so many questions about Switzerland. That's that, that would be a, Dude, I tell you what, Ryan is right now making vacation plans for himself to go to Switzerland on our dime. I guarantee you that. He would love to go to Switzerland. I would also love to go to Switzerland. 
I would, I would love to go to Switzerland. I mean, there's a lot of places I would love to go, but the problem is when I'm in Switzerland, I'm not here doing a podcast and people say, I'd love you to do this, that, and the other, but then they want us to also do a podcast from Switzerland. <laughs> we could do it right in the backdrop of the Alps while drinking Swiss Miss or what the version of Swiss Miss is there. God, I don't lovely. think they have Swiss Miss in Switzerland. They probably would laugh at that. They have the real Swiss Miss. They have Very the real. Yeah. They yeah. have the real Swiss Miss, not, not the box stuff. Although my roommate like specifically loves boxed hot cocoa, like Swiss Miss. Like he's, he doesn't do K-Cups? Loves... You can get K-Cups with Swiss Miss. A what? What? K-Cup? A K-Cup? You mean like the coffee thing? Yeah. But they make it with Swiss Miss? Yeah. With hot chocolate, oh. you can get all kinds of this. Kinds. This is not a uh, this is not a development I am hip to. I don't drink coffee, so I'm not hip to this to this Why development. I'm a big um, You're a tea boy. Is, it's not G Fuel. It's not sports drinks. Not prime. It's, uh, English black breakfast tea wow. with uh, Italian sweet cream coffee mate is what I like. Uh, it's an odd combination, but. It's uh, very good, and so I, I drink that a lot. So K-Cups are just easier to do than actually making tea over a pot and kettle. Every episode, I feel like we peel back a little bit of an onion layer on the man that is Hurricane Gerard Martinez. He likes tea, apparently. I did not know this. Will we get an onion peel next week? I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have a show next week. I would go into it thinking we would, assuming something happens within the next week with the transfer portal closing over the weekend. And maybe we'll do a wrap up show for all that before we go on break, but I don't know. We'll have to figure it out as we go along. You got, you, but, what's going to, you guys got to check in with Eddie and his <laughs> section in the newsletter that you get through Gaucho's emails list. That's, that's, that's what you have to do. If you, if you, if you know, then you know. Bear puns. I like those. Okay. Well, I am Chris. That is Gerard. He's going to go make a nice cup of tea. But thank you for joining us on this podcast, and we will see you next time on Composite Two Star Recruits. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found.